sometimes I really hate the New York Times. Uh, like every time you look at it right before we start the show? No, just whenever they talk about foreign policy or national politics. This is hell. Okay. What that guy said. And we are continuing our celebration of Listener Appreciation Month all July here on This is Hell, when we only feature guests suggested by you. We are now only two weeks away, a fortnight from our fourth annual This is Hell 20th Anniversary listener appreciation party and art show which is happening on saturday july 27th all day all night at carrie's lounge 2251 west of on chicago's north side in the west ridge little india neighborhood there's going to be food music art you'll get to see our new but still incomplete studio provided by your incredible support of this is hell on patreon at patreon.com slash this is hell where you can get an exclusive weekly podcast only for Patreon subscribers. Again, at patreon.com slash thisishell. Our studios and this show are also brought to you by listeners who have gone to our website, thisishell.com, then clicked on support and selected from our line of This Is Hell gifts that we give you for helping us bring the show to you every week, twice a week. You are what makes us possibly the only truly independent radio show or podcast or whatever the hell this thing is now. So all month long, we are showing our appreciation for you helping us exist. We are still taking suggestions for guests throughout Listener Appreciation Month. And if we select your guest and actually get them on air, we will send you a secret mystery prize. So send your suggestions to chuck at thisishell.com. And again, if we pick your guest, you get a prize on this week's live, fresh, this is hell right out of the oven that is increasingly our planet. Climate change is happening all around us. So why do we keep burning more and more fossil fuels? Following a happy dose of the inevitable and unavoidable collapse of society due to climate change and how we got there, in our second hour, we will have the return of a listener favorite who has discovered neoliberal fascism has taken hold here in the U.S. Then, after climate change and authoritarianism, the hits keep coming, this time with the fight against apartheid and how the Cold War divided African Americans from Africans in the fight against overthrowing white supremacy on the Cape, and it even gets weirder than that. And if climate change, authoritarianism, and apartheid aren't hellish enough, we go back to the battle for Lincoln Park and how the fight over one neighborhood's future created a present-day Chicago that has rampant racial and economic segregation. As always, contributor Jeff Dorchin will deliver a moment of truth to wrap up this week's show, and he'll be doing it live in studio when he joins us during our final hour of this week's This Is Hell. And I have sold out. Hey, what are you going to do? Not enough people subscribe to Patreon? can't help it, don't have a choice. I mean, sure, we appreciate the the listener suggestions, and we 
Hope you have a great time at the party, but like I said, I didn't have a choice. I sold out. Bringing you bong hitting journalism since 1996, this is hell and this week in hell. We all know we are already living in an era of climate change. And if you don't, you really got to get your head out from that Everest size pile of rocks. Or just go to New Orleans or Myanmar and visit the Rohingya. Yeah, if you're still in denial about climate change, go to Myanmar and visit the Rohingya and the Karin, who are now being forced into shoreline areas that are being wiped out by sea level rise. Go there and tell them that what they're seeing with their own eyes, what they're experiencing, what's killing their people, doesn't exist. Then, if you can, explain to them why, despite all that, the world is still burning more and more fossil fuels every year. The very thing that causes climate change, we're, we're doing more of, despite us being more certain that climate change exists and is already happening. We'll try to figure out why we're still increasing fossil fuel consumption when we talk to writer, historian, researcher of energy, Russia, Ukraine, and the Caspian, Simon Perani. He is author of Burning Up, A Global History of Fossil Fuel Consumption. Simon is Senior Visiting Research Fellow at the Oxford Institute for Energy Studies Natural Gas Program and has written widely on Soviet history and energy issues. Find out more about the Oxford Institute for Energy Studies at OxfordEnergy.org. Find out more about Simon at SimonPirani.com. That's P-I-R-A-N-I. We want to thank listener Paolo at Paolo Bottleneck on Twitter for suggesting Simon by writing, Talk to Simon Pirani, to which Simon replied, Yep, I'd love to do that. It's that kind of riveting Twitter conversation at This Is Hell Radio that gets your suggested guest on air and gets you a special secret mystery prize from your friends here at This Is Hell. After Simon hopefully helps us understand why we're burning up the planet the fastest rate yet and doing nothing to stop it. It's not bad enough that we have to deal with a dying planet. It's also a planet that increasingly is full of dicks, neoliberal fascist dicks. What is neoliberal fascism, and how is this current breed, uh, breed, breed? I'll say flavor of authoritarianism taking hold in the U.S. and in many places around the world? Well, if it's authoritarianism you want to discuss, then the best person to discuss it with is a fan favorite here on This Is Hell, cultural critic, writer, university professor, journalist, and a member of the board of directors for Truth Out. Henry Giroux is author of a new book to be published Tuesday, July 16th, that you can find out more about right now, including how to order at henrygiroux.com. The new book is called The Terror of the Unforeseen. Henry was suggested by John, who writes, Mr. Mertz, please have Henry Giroux on for an hour. Tune in during our second hour to find out how long we do end up going with Henry. Today, we're having Henry on to tell us about his latest writing at Ragazine, ragazine.cc, titled The Age of Jackals. Henry holds the McMaster University Chair for Scholarship in the Public Interest and is the Paulo Freire Distinguished Scholar in Critical Pedagogy. Henry has been appearing on This Is Hell for 10 years now, since 2009, and you can hear our very, very first interview with Henry on this week's Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell. That's patreon.com slash thisishell. It's there Right now, the interview that we shared this week exclusively for our Patreon subscribers was our first ever interview with Henry. So you can find that right now by going to, hen- to patreon.com slash thisishell and subscribing. 
Following the continuing to in, following our continuing desire to increase consumption of fossil fuels in the face of climate change and neoliberalism's fasc, uh, neoliberal fascism's rise in authoritarian power, we will host another returning guest because that's what listener Calvin wants us to do. The way you think about the anti-apartheid campaign that took down South Africa's racist minority leadership is about to be completely changed. From the impact of the Cold War on African Americans' actual support for the apartheid regime to the not-so-revolutionary leadership of Nelson Mandela, prepare for your mind to be blown. We'll find out what really happened in the fight to end apartheid and what didn't when we talk to historian Gerald Horn, author of White Supremacy Confronted, U.S. Imperialism and Anti-Communism versus the Liberation of South Southern Africa from Rhodes to Mandela. We want to thank Calvin for suggesting Gerald be back on our show. Calvin told us he, quote, recently saw that Gerald Horn has two new books out, Jazz and Justice, Racism and the Political Economy of, the, of Music, and White Supremacy Confronted. Calvin says last year's This Is Hell interview with Gerald was one of my favorite of 2018, and it looks like either or both of these books could also make for an excellent interview. Thanks, Calvin, and with apologies to jazz fans who are very upset about us not discussing jazz this morning, possibly. We will be discussing White Supremacy Confronted with Gerald. Gerald is John J. Rebecca Moore's Professor of African American History at the University of Houston. You remember Gerald, you may remember Gerald being on our show last year, as Calvin did, to talk about his book The Apocalypse of Settler Colonialism, The Roots of Slavery, White Supremacy and Capitalism in 17th Century North America and the Caribbean, which we chose as one of the best books to be featured on This Is Hell in 2018. Our final guest before Jeff's moment of truth and following conversations on global warming, fascism, and white supremacy, because this is hell, we'll look back at the gentrification that started the gentrification, racial, and economic segregation that we see so prevalent throughout Chicago today, and that's the transformation of what is now Lily White and hyper-wealthy Old Town in Lincoln Park from what it was that originally attracted people to the area, namely racial, ethnic, and economic diversity, which made the neighborhood a hub for artistic expression. Why Lincoln Park, and how did that lead to the rest of the North Side getting all white? We'll learn when we have a conversation with urban issues scholar Daniel K. Hertz, author of The Battle of Lincoln Park, Urban Renewal and Gentrification in Chicago. Then listener and now producer Leo suggested Daniel as a guest telling us via email at chuck at thisishell.com. Here's this guy I was talking about when we met during office hours. He works for the Chicago Center for Tax and Budget Accountability at CTBA underscore online on Twitter and as a photographer of interesting buildings in Chicago's north side. And he wrote a book called The Battle of Lincoln Park. So that could be interesting, although I don't have any questions in mind at the moment. Leo made the suggestion during our weekly meet and greet and shortly after became a producer here on This Is Hell. So congratulations to Leo twice, once for being a new producer and once for actually getting a guest he suggested on air, and if you are interested in becoming part of the This Is Hell crew, drop by during Wednesday evening's meet and greet at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon, and we'll show you our still not quite complete studios we are building with listener support. Daniel writes about urban issues at beltpublishing.com and in several other publications, including City Observatory. You can find out more about Daniel at danielkhertz.com. Then we'll close this week's four-hour extravaganza, as we do most episodes of This Is Hell. With a moment of truth, this week, Jeff Dorchin wonders why the right thinks anyone cares about their feelings, that the Dems are too far left. 
And like I said in a few, I'll tell you how I sold out. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, Chuck Mertz, producing this week's This Is Hell. Alex Jerry. Alex, what's new about you? Uh, a neighbor the other day was complaining to me about drug dealers on our street. It's like, lady, uh, where do you think all our drugs come from? This sort of nimbyism. Disgusting. So uh, this isn't the person with the huge American flag. Uh, no, no. Now, those people, though, have, uh, as of last week, nine American flags on their front <laughs> yawn and bunting. <laughs> it is, uh, we are, dis- this is worse than a Henry Giroux interview. We are, I can tell we're descending into fascists looking to my left. Brave enough to be live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we could be a regular part of your weekly hangover. This is hell. And Alex has this week's hangover cure. I do really don't want to read this one. <laughs> this week's hangover cure is Cluck and Cleaver's Mother Clucker Sandwich. So According to an article at eatnorth.com <laughs> titled Six Shorefire Hangover Cures for Calgary Stampede. <laughs> Everything about this is wrong. By already. alleged journalist Dan Clapson. Who says, when isn't it a bad time for fried chicken? That, that's, Wait, isn't it? Or is? I don't know. That doesn't make or any sense. isn't right? it a good time? Okay. When isn't it a good time for fried chicken? Or when is it a bad time for fried chicken? Not when isn't it a bad time for fried chicken. Really weird, Dan. Really weird. Despite his difficulties with the language, Clapson continues, this big, deliciously messy chicken sandwich from Nicole Gomes's fried chicken hotspot Cluck and Cleaver <laughs> is the perfect hang- handheld hangover cure to pick up and eat on your way to your next stampede stop. The creamy slaw and pickle ba- ooh, p- pickle balance out the hot sauce on top of the golden crusted chicken breast. Smaller appetites can opt for ugh, can opt out for the little clucker, <laughs> which takes after its mother naturally, but is more humble in size. That makes this week's hangover cure. If you are attending the Calgary Stampede, <laughs> the Cluck and Cleaver's mother clucker sandwich, as poorly reported by alleged journalist Dan Clapson. That's so. It's such a bad line. When isn't it a bad time for fried chicken? That implies that it's always a bad time for Frank. Dan Clapson, get your act together. You are listening to God's favorite radio show. Prove us wrong. This is hell. I sold out. I'm a sellout. After doing all these radio shows, giving a platform for dissenting opinions, conversations that are not allowed anywhere else, topics that are not discussed in the corporate establishment, biased conflict of interest news media I sold out following decades of considering questions that are otherwise never asked examining what is considered above criticism pushing the boundaries of taboos I'm a sellout all in search of a a better understanding of our world still all of that in search of a better understanding of our world and I've sold out I was doing all that so we can come up with something anything better seeking the alternative that current powers that be insist do not exist risking my very livelihood by biting the hand that feeds us all after all of that after sabotaging any possibility of a commercial or corporate public radio career by daring to host opponents of institutional racism patriarchy misogyny settler colonialism white privilege and supremacy are willing to make the philosophical inquiries that others work hard to avoid conversations like last week's with Sophie Lewis that reconsidered gestation, family, and gender. Except you actually may hear Sophie discussed in the media elsewhere because apparently Tucker Carlson has made Sophie the target of hate. As an aside, just for a moment, when protesters went to Tucker Carlson's home, corporate media members from Fox News to CNN to MSNBC online and in print as well, all came out in defense of Tucker Carlson, believing protesters had gone too far. Yet, oddly, We're not hearing the same kind of indignation toward Carlson for his unleashing of vile, violent hatred toward Sophie. 
On mainstream media criticism shows, no matter the political shtick they've decided to program in order to get ratings and advertisers, they always support their own, and Tucker Carlson is one of their own. They rush to the defense of their colleagues because they know they could be next, and they could be if they make someone the target of violence and hatred, and if you do that to someone else, you got to be ready to get a little blowback. All right, aside, over. Like I was saying, I sold out, even though for decades, if there's anything we've been consistently doing throughout the history of our show, it's manufacturing dissent that is anti-capitalist. Yet, I sold out. That anti-capitalism is what distances our show from conservatives, libertarians, centrists, and liberals who refuse to offer an analysis of capitalism other than how to fix and supposedly reform the market when all they are really doing is reinforcing the power of those markets over and the commodification of all of us with the humblest of admissions of guilt while giving airtime to revolutionary, radical, even militant voices demanding social transformation in the face of our epidemics of global warming, incentivized poverty, as well as racism, misogyny, and hatreds of all kinds that are purposely created as sites of exploitation, while profits drive innovations that make violence and war easier to commit. Now at the flip of a switch with remote control soldiers safe at home as they kill soon-to-be victims thousands of miles away, who are believing that they too are safe at home. Yes, I've sold out to all that this show has stood for over the 20 plus years we've been doing whatever the hell this is hell is. And I cannot apologize enough. I'd say that I couldn't help it. I didn't have a choice. I was forced to sell out, but that would only be rationalizing an attempt at avoiding responsibility for my actions. And in the end, it was me who decided to actually sell out. Don't Get me wrong, I'm not very good at selling out, and I'll probably fail at that too. Because when your business model has been putting people before profits for as long as ours has, you know I'm not very good at anything related to the bottom line. Who knew that talking to anti-capitalists for around 4,000 hours over the past couple of decades would have the effect of making me really bad at capitalism. On the other hand, I guess I should have seen that coming too. After all, you chatted up with people far smarter than you about the purposely unfair and unequal conditions necessary for capitalism to succeed, to exist as much as I have every week, every month, every year since 1996. And you gotta figure that had to do a number on my cerebrum and the psyche within, both of which have had to put up with any number of chemicals and substances, both natural and synthetic during my lifetime. So it doesn't need all that agita. But no matter how hard I try and how bad I am at selling out, I can't stop myself from selling out. The logic bros of the far right, trolls whose nonsensical arguments are meant to confuse and distract from their inaccurate assumptions and false conclusions, on an effort to provoke liberals into revealing their half-heartedness of left, uh, leftist projects. The Jags, we talked about last week with philosopher Ben Burgess, author of Give Them an Argument, Logic for the Left. Those pathetic, you gotta get the last word in, even if it doesn't make any sense, so I can declare victory in whatever debate they're imagining. And they'll sadly and unwittingly, which is the saddest part, misrepresent the exchange to their like-minded friends later. Those doofuses, they happily point out the unavoidable hypocrisy of anyone who is critical of capitalism and in any way interacts with anything at any time that is the result of capitalism or, heaven forbid, actually engages in the market by either earning or spending money. If you're an anti-capitalist like me, someone who believes there can be something better than this nightmare that's making us all more unequal, more depressed, and closer to 
near-term societal collapse due to global warming, which is caused by the overconsumption of a very few powerful elite who refuse to conserve. If you want a better system than that, yet you're actually participating in that system, that ubiquitous, unavoidable system that encroaches on all our privacy, that fills our view of the world everywhere we look, that fills the sounds of everything we hear, selling songs, selling ideas, selling cars for kids, and I believe the going rate as of this morning's market bell was one kid was trading at a 2001 Pontiac Aztec level, which is a very low price, and keen buyers seem to be taking advantage of the low price as the cars for kids market has just edged up slightly. The exchange rate now is at one kid for every Nissan Rogue. If you're an anti-capitalist and you are hearing my voice right now, you are joining me in selling out by participating in capitalism. I know, I don't want to do it any more than you do. It sucks, but you can't get around it. A few weeks ago, I described my attempt at not participating in capitalism one day, and I couldn't even make our morning coffee without selling out to a system that exploits for profit and destroys our planet, which got me so down I wanted to go back to bed until I remembered... I sleep on sheets that are likely from some sort of sweatshop with near-slave labor, but time and again I find myself, and even those I know who have more of a radical distaste for the free market that enslaves us all, basing our value on how much success we have in the system we now that now oppresses us. D.P. Hunter, author of Chav Solidarity, who was on our show recently, D.P. writes about the disconnect in his book that even if you loathe capitalism, especially late capitalism, neoliberalism, financialization, privatization, austerity, whatever you call it, or all of those things separately and or combined, you still end up judging yourself by how well you've done within the limits and criteria of a system you oppose. I sell out when I accept a wage, trading my priceless and very limited, incredibly finite time on earth for the necessities of living, like food, clothing, shelter and what we call making a living i devalue my life into dollars and cents that can never truly assess the real value of mine or anyone else's life and i have proof if capitalism's the market's barometer of determining mon worth money rewards one individual with one more wealth than another thereby determining the life of the wealthier person to have greater value yet the person who earns less money actually has a life that has greater value Money fails as a measure of worth, which would mean the concept our entire political economic system is based upon is flawed to the point of being a fraud. Now ask yourself, is it possible that someone who makes less money can be happier and give their life more value than a person who makes more money? Of course that can happen. We know it can happen. But the real problem isn't a failure of money. It's a failure of comparing and ranking and giving more and compelling and competing and all the horrible things we embrace when we sell out by participating in the market that deserves to be overthrown. So I'm selling out. I'm sorry. I don't want to keep selling out, but I will. I'll try to avoid selling out, but as long as I don't want to become homeless again, as long as I don't want to be in the position of not knowing where my next meal is coming from again, as long as I don't have to go through other people's trash to find anything that has monetary value Again, I gotta gravel, I gotta submit, I must be a supplicant, I gotta sell out to the hate fuel system I wish to destroy. That is, until we can come up with a system that doesn't dehumanize for profit the way our current one does. So yeah, I sold out and became a capitalist, I guess. I've always been one, being born in the system that controls everything everywhere. To exist, all we all, no matter if we call ourselves communists or socialists or DSA members or Trotskyites or Bernie supporters, we all have to sell out to capitalism, although there are signs... I'm not all that great at selling out. I'm missing teeth due to poverty. I've amassed huge amounts of debt. 
due to an anti-capitalist radio show, which kind of makes sense in some perverted capitalist way. I'm completely unemployed in any traditional sense. My credit rating has got to be in single digits. Now that I, not that I check because I'm working really hard to dupe myself into thinking I'm anti-capitalist. So I'm a sellout, a hypocrite. Right-wing logic bros are correct, but that's why I know we can do better than capitalism, better than the reign of the markets over everything, because capitalism makes us all sellouts, makes us all hypocrites, which is a real good reason to have something other than capitalism. We're all hypocrites. We're all sellouts because that's what happens within the situation we live. This is capitalism, which devalues our existence into nothing more than just another good to be sold, and that's why. This is hell. This week's question from hell is, what has Baron Trump been up to this whole time? What has Baron Trump been up to this whole time? All replies read on air during the third hour of this week's show. This week's winner gets one of the new pieces of This Is Hell merch that we will have available for listeners at the annual Listener Appreciation Party and Art Show on Saturday, July 27th at Carrie's. And the one we're giving away this week, just like it was last week, is our brand new trucker's cap. Again, the question from hell is, what has Baron Trump been up to this whole time? Leave your response right now at facebook.com slash thisishellradio. Listen during the third hour to see if you've won. Coming up on this week's This Is Hell, climate change is happening all around us, yet we're still producing and consuming fossil fuels at record rates, records that keep getting broken every year. Then we'll have the return of a listener favorite who has discovered neoliberal fascism has taken hold in the U.S. After climate change and authoritarianism, we will be discussing the fight against apartheid and how the Cold War divided African Americans from Africans and the fight against overthrowing white supremacy. And then we'll go back to the Battle of Lincoln Park and how the fight over one neighborhood's future created a present-day Chicago that has rampant racial and economic segregation. During the moment of truth, Jeff Jeff Dorchin wonders why the right thinks anyone cares about their feelings, that the Dems are too far left. We'll also have Rotten History, listener feedback, what Alex has been up to on social media. We'll tell you what we've been doing on our Patreon podcast, and we'll keep reminding you about our upcoming party. Uh, Of course, the question from hell. We want to thank some listeners for sharing the show online, others for supporting This Is Hell at thisishell.com when they click on support. And we'll tell you what's happening on upcoming episodes of This Is Hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, Chuck Mertz, producing this week's show, Alex Jerry, The Planet's on Fire. So, yes. This is hell. Fossil fuel consumption keeps soaring despite climate change already happening. Here to give us a historical context on fossil fuel use and help us understand why we keep burning, even though we're literally burning up. Writer, historian, researcher of energy, Russia, Ukraine, and the Caspian, Simon Prani is author of Burning Up, A Global History of Fossil Fuel Consumption. Thank you for being on the show, Simon. Hello, uh Thank you for uh, inviting me. We are hosting throughout the entire month of July only guests suggested by you, our listeners, and Simon was suggested by on Twitter by Paolo Bottleneck when Paolo DM'd us at This Is How Radio, succinctly writing, talk to Simon Pirani, to which Simon replied as succinctly, yep, I'd love to do that. So Paolo has just won a secret mystery prize from here from us here at This Is Hell, and if uh, anybody wants to suggest a guest, just send me your email, chuck at thisishell.com. Simon, you can find out more about at simonpirani.com. That's Simon, P-I-R-A-N-I.com. You write that each year fossil fuels, coal, 
oil, gas are consumed in ever greater quantities, despite the danger of global warming, which makes such large-scale consumption unsustainable. The facts of consumption growth are at odds with ever more insistent claims that we are moving to a post fossil fuel era. Clearly, the causes of consumption growth are very strong, and as you explain, you hope to put them into a historical perspective. To what extent are we intentionally duping ourselves into believing that fossil fuel consumption must be decreasing with all the electric cars on the roads, the ones you see on the highways, highways lined with wind turbines near farmhouses that have solar panels with everyone using reusable bags and recycling bins everywhere? It must be better now than it was in the past, right? So why why don't why do we dupe ourselves into believing that fossil fuel consumption is getting better when it's not? The one word uh, answer to that, Chuck, is politics. Um, what we've seen here uh, in the UK uh, a couple of months ago is that the Parliament, uh, which is in complete chaos for other reasons, um, declared. Uh, acknowledged, recognized that there is a, quote, climate emergency, unquote. Uh, This came after the uh, strikes by school pupils, which I think have been very, very inspiring. Uh, These strikes having brought a whole new generation uh, into the uh, front line of uh, fighting about uh, climate change. And the parliament took this decision Um, and clearly saw no contradiction at all between that decision and the fact that uh, the majority of our uh, members of parliament continue to support uh, a long-running plan to build a third runway at Heathrow Airport, the largest uh, UK airport. They see no contradiction between voting for this uh, resolution and uh, supporting a whole number of road construction projects Uh, which activists in various parts of the UK are trying to resist. And they see no contradiction between uh, putting their hands up and voting for this uh, resolution and a policy on oil production in the UK, which effectively continues to subsidize uh, the international oil companies that are working on the North Sea. Uh, There's a policy called uh, maximizing economic recovery because uh, the oil fields, uh, some of the oil fields in the North Sea are now in uh, natural decline. So it's a question of scraping out every last barrel of oil by doing extra investment. And in order to ensure that happens, the government has given these companies uh, huge tax breaks, such that in two recent tax years, uh, the aggregate tax bill for all the producers on the North Sea was minus. In other words, the uh, rebates and refunds they were getting. Uh, collectively exceeded the amount they were paying in tax. So I think this kind of hypocrisy is very deeply built into our political system. It doesn't. It didn't just start with uh, climate change. We can think of um, wars being waged in the name of quote democracy unquote, uh, which has a, a hollow ring for the people on uh, the people at whom those wars are targeted. Uh, that's obviously been going on. Uh, for a very long time. But what we've seen with climate is that uh, in 1992, which is now 27 years ago, they had the Rio uh, summit uh, where the world's politicians, including all the oil-producing nations, including the United States, including Saudi Arabia, everybody else, all gathered and acknowledged that the climate scientists were telling the truth, that uh, there was a big problem, uh, and they voted to 
uh, take action. They didn't use the word climate emergency, but I mean, it was the same. Uh, it was the same kind of hypocrisy because from there onwards, what we saw was uh, those governments, um, those governments uh, overseeing a policy which has uh, allowed fossil fuel fuel use uh, each year to go up. It's by 60%. So it's 60% higher now than it was at the time of that conference. And I mean, there are a number of reasons for this, but while they've talked about using market mechanisms, in quotes, to uh, discourage the use of fossil fuels, at the very same time, those governments have uh, poured literally hundreds of billions of dollars in subsidies. Uh, the exact figure depends on the exact way you count, but they've poured enormous quantities of subsidies, both into uh, decreasing the cost of fossil fuels to consumers, but also very significantly uh, decreasing the cost of producing these fuels to oil companies, coal companies, and so on. So uh, it's, it's a hypocrisy, which is at the center of the international political system. It's a failure of that system in the sense that it does acknowledge there's a problem, but is actually taking us uh, deeper into that problem. Um, and I think that's what we're all... Uh, living with. And I think it's very important for all the many groups and campaigns and people uh, everywhere, whether school students or slightly older, um, who realize that something has to be done about climate change. A big part of what we have to do is to um, disentangle uh, the rhetoric from the reality. How much hope do you have for those kinds of market mechanisms to rein in fossil fuel consumption? Because whenever I do hear any project when it's relating to confronting global warming or climate change, it often, if not always, when it's something that's actually going to be applied, something that the governments are actually going to uh, consider, it's always a market solution. So how much faith do you have in market-based mechanisms to rein in fossil fuel consumption? We've seen uh, very clearly in the case of uh, the international climate talks that these mechanisms have failed. So that's a historical fact that has happened. Um, as a result of those talks, the uh, European uh, emissions trading system uh, was set up and um, other similar uh, markets were introduced in different countries to try to put a price on carbon, that is to make uh, companies pay in one way or another for every uh, tonne of carbon uh, or carbon-related material that was uh, emitted into the atmosphere for every ton of uh, greenhouse gas that was emitted into the atmosphere. And clearly those uh, schemes failed. The European scheme was gamed by companies who uh, took advantage of loopholes um, that allowed them to receive these permits to pollute, uh, these certificates, uh, which were then traded in the open market. And uh, clearly, uh, there was no impact on the level of consumption. And I always remember uh, about 10 years ago going to a seminar with uh, colleagues, and it was all uh, under Chatham-Mouse rules and behind closed doors, so I, I won't uh, share the name of the particular person, not that he particularly care now, but anyway, it was a, a very senior analyst in one of the banks uh, who had uh, spent a career following uh, the oil industry for the advantage of, of for, for the 
in order to advise investors and uh, capitalists about how to make money from it. And he was talking about the emissions trading system when it was first set up, and the price of these certificates had just gone down from, I think, about 15, 20 euros a ton it started out at, and then it crashed to about two or three euros per ton. And this guy said, look, come back when you've got a carbon price of a couple of hundred dollars per ton, and then we'll see some change in the systems that produce these uh, carbon emissions. But until then, uh, nothing's going to work. So why don't we just make it prohibitively, prohibitively expensive to produce, to actually use fossil fuels? Why can't the market, why can't we just make the market, make it so it's just unaffordable? So uh, that's the proposal uh, which um, was embraced, for example, by uh, James Hansen, a, a man I very much admire, who was a climate scientist, who right. was the epitome of, a, of an establishment scientist who worked for uh, NASA. Uh, but once he'd uh, convinced himself of the connection between uh, global warming and uh, carbon emissions, was very vocal on that subject, uh, famously went to the U.S. Senate in uh, the mid-1980s and said, look, uh, there's a problem with this. And he uh, advocates uh, a global uh, carbon tax uh, as a means of, under capitalism, uh, solving this problem. Um, and, of course, it's very logical. And uh, you know, this is by no means a stupid guy. And uh, there's a conclusion he's come to uh, with some support, I think, from people in the Democratic Party and so on. But the reality, of course, is that not, that is not going to happen. Um, there are some, uh, I think, some of the Canadian provinces. There are some other examples of local governments uh, introducing these uh, carbon taxes. But I think what we know from the history of the uh, international climate talks is that to do this on a global scale... Um, under capitalism really is not in uh, prospect. And I think what is actually going to happen is that uh, the issue of uh, reducing uh, fossil fuel use is going to be another battle, another site of struggle between uh, progressive forces that are trying to change the world to uh, make our society more human and those that uh, want to maintain the uh, present system in its present form. What would you say to somebody who blames all of the increase in fossil fuel consumption that continues to increase despite what we know about global warming? What would you say to somebody who says, well, it's just because there's more people. The more people we have, the more fossil fuels we're going to burn. The problem is we just have too many people or that we just keep creating more people. What do you say to somebody who blames all of the problems when it relates to global warming and climate change, increased fossil fuel consumption, blames it all on overpopulation? Right. So I think two, two answers. One is that the actual uh, figures on uh, fossil fuel use and population uh, show very clearly that the relationship between one and the other uh, is very complicated. So, for example, in the last 30 years, um, hundreds of millions of additional uh, people have been brought into, uh, have been brought access to electricity in India, uh, which is very, most of it's generated from uh, coal-burning power stations. So that electricity comes basically from fossil fuels, and hundreds of millions of people have, for the first time. Uh, been brought onto the system. And a group of uh, researchers analyzed how much of India's increased fossil fuel use uh, was, co was caused by that 
uh, electrification? And the answer was, it's very difficult to do the numbers, but the answer was somewhere between sort of 10 and 25%. Most of, and we're just talking about the extra, and we're just talking about India, most of the extra fossil fuel use was from expansion of industry and from expanded use by people who had long already had access. Uh, in other words, India's uh, urban population uh, and the uh, so-called Indian middle class, a quite small group of of fairly well-off people at the top of Indian uh, society. So the research is very clear that uh, hundreds of millions of, of people can start to have some sort of access to electricity produced from fossil fuels with very little effect. Uh, the um, business as usual, if you like, in uh, cities uh, and city uh, systems uh, city technological systems, city building systems, city transport systems, uh, and the richest people in society can add quite rapidly uh, to the figures. The second point I would make, and it's a theme that uh, runs throughout my book, is that fossil fuels are actually consumed by technological systems. And what we need to get at is the way those systems work and the way that they're embedded in social and economic systems. And just to give you an example, so probably the uh, probably in rich countries like this one and uh, like the USA, uh, the largest uh, direct fossil fuel use that any ordinary person uh, does is uh, in their car. Um, and it's clear that uh, getting away from fossil fuels will mean a reduction in car use. But actually, even in that case, it's not really so much about individuals changing their behavior, although, you know, you see people driving around in huge, great truck-like cars and you think, come on, mate, get on a bike. Um, but what is really uh, important, what really ups the figures, what really ups the fossil fuel use by cars is that we live in cities that are built around cars. We live in uh, cities where everything is uh, fashioned around the roads and the parking spaces. We live in cities where other types of transport have been destroyed. Um, and we live in an economy where manufacture of cars is seen as a huge uh, plus. And of course, uh, as a historian, it was fascinating to read about concepts like planned obsolescence. Uh, that was invented by General Motors in the 1920s, that you make something not to last as long as is practical, um, and don't forget the stuff that cars are made from, uh, the, the metals that are used and so on, are themselves very energy-intensive. Making cars is a very energy-intensive business, as is laying roads and building parking spaces. Um, but uh, General Motors, among all the other things it's brought to the world, has brought the idea of planned obsolescence that you know, every couple of years, uh, a corporation has to go out and buy a completely new fleet of cars for its employees. So when we talk about cars, yes, uh, there, are, there are millions of people driving around in these huge, great mobile metal armchairs who would do better to uh, perhaps get out and get on a bike. But the real issue is, you know, when a city is going to be built that are bicycle friendly um, and where uh, families can actually get around with young children without uh, getting into a car. Um, and uh, so a final example uh, of just uh, how crucial this systemic approach is, is that urban planning people like to compare Barcelona in Spain to Atlanta uh, in the United States. 
Um, and uh, they've showed, there's been research which has showed that the fossil fuel use or the greenhouse gas emissions per head for the population of Barcelona is 11 times smaller than it is for Atlanta. That's because Atlanta is spread out because everybody does drive around in these big trucks. Uh, it's very difficult even to uh, do otherwise in Atlanta because the, the facilities for other types of uh, getting around are just not there. Now, uh, I'll ask your listeners, do they think that the uh, population of Atlanta is 11 times happier than the population of Barcelona? And I think we all know the answer to that. And just recent developments in Barcelona, the new right-wing government wants to, or no, it's in Madrid. In Madrid, the new right-wing government wants to, or maybe it was Barcelona, wants to bring back the cars into the streets on uh, in areas where there have not been cars, it's just been pedestrian areas. And then we have this new issue within Minneapolis where they're trying to change their zoning rules where you can no longer zone for a single-family home anywhere in the city in order to bring more people back into the city so they're not spreading out. So there are ways in which people are addressing these bigger systemic things. <clears throat> that said, how aware are we of the myriad ways in which we consume fossil fuels in which they guide our life, as you were saying, through urban planning? And if we did become more aware, it, would the problem be solved? Is awareness the problem, or is it bigger than just informing people of how dependent not only we are as a culture, as a society, but our urban planning and everything that we use, how dependent it all is on fossil fuels? That's a, that's a complicated question, uh, Chuck. And I think, uh, I, well, I'll, I, I can only give a bit of an answer to it, I think, um, that what, what has been very exciting for me, uh, and I've been thinking about these issues for quite a few years, is uh, in the last year or so to come into contact with a lot of people who've started thinking about these issues for the first time. And that's been uh, through things like the school strikes we've also had here in the UK. Uh, I'm not sure how much of a thing it is in the US, but uh, we've had here in the UK Extinction Rebellion, uh, which has used uh, non-violent direct action tactics. They they sat on the bridges, closed the bridges in London uh, for several weeks there uh, in the springtime. Um, and there are lots and lots of people who've uh, been involved in this. And um, I think larger groups of people than in previous uh, movements we've had on environment in uh, the UK with respect to uh, the road building protests and so on in the 1990s. So there's been lots of people who've, who've come in and started thinking about it for the first time. And obviously they've the, the initial awareness that actually, you know, all the, I think 19 of the 20th hottest years ever recorded have been in the last 20 odd years. Um, so this is really happening, you know, whatever the president of the United States and other people uh, who continue to deny the impact of climate change say, I think that's blindingly obvious to lots and lots of people. So I think that's why uh, we've got this new environmental movement. But of course, um, it's not immediately obvious um, exactly how the fossil fuels are used. I mean, in a sense, that's one of the things that uh, drove me to write the book, because I think people come in and think, oh, well, look, if only we can uh, put the squeeze on the oil companies and stop them producing this stuff, or if we can only uh, put the squeeze on this particular project and stop that from happening. And, of course, I, I, I'm all for doing those things, and uh, it's great when people get into activism and uh, try to change the world in whatever uh, small way. But I think the, uh, I think the, the awareness that has to come 
and it's the only way that's going to sustain this battle because it will be and it, or it is and will be a battle over the long term. I think there has to be an awareness about the the way that fossil fuels are are so deeply embedded in the whole uh, social and economic uh, system. And a comparison is with the ozone layer. Uh, they had an international meeting uh, on the hole that was growing in the ozone layer, um, which was largely a result of the chlorofluorocarbons that old types of fridges produce. And it was clear that the scientists came to the politicians and said, this is really going to play havoc uh, with the whole Earth system. And actually, they had an international meeting. They uh, banned these substances um, that were used in the manufacture of fridges, and the whole uh, largely closed. Uh, there's also been news recently that it's partly opening up again, which is partly because of uh, these old fridges being dumped on a mass uh, scale. But uh, certainly the very dangerous situation that had been created was actually solved by uh, international political action. Now, that's a complete contrast with fossil fuels. And I think the reason is clear, because fossil fuel production and use is so deeply embedded in the system that in order to move to a post-fossil fuel um, age, which we will have to do one way or the other, but the only way to do that uh, is going to be through massive disruption and massive challenge to that system in a way that was not necessary in the case of the ozone layer. We've had guests on our show who are concerned about any new infrastructure project, even if it has the promise of a Green New Deal, because any repair or reconfiguration of our infrastructure means producing materials like steel and cement that are energy intensive to have a more green world. Do we have to use products that are energy intensive and therefore add to the problem to address it? I think uh again there's no there's no simple answer uh to that. I think clearly we're talking about a technological uh transition and um when I think about it uh I do get driven back to the conclusion that only with massive uh social change and political change and change in the way that power is uh, exercised in society, are we going to have any chance of success? Um, the internet uh, gives us a technology which makes it which makes it possible to decide on the sort of issues you're talking about. Um, how best to use uh, the minimal amount of materials? How most rationally to do it uh, for the welfare of the largest number of people? And clearly, we have a communications tool, which has already been in existence for 20 or 30 years, which makes it extremely easy for the people who understand the different technologies to put their heads together and to come up with solutions. But equally clearly, the way that the internet and all the other technologies are used and uh, the power that is exercised over them means that they're not even starting to be used uh, in that way. I mean, we can see it in electricity. Uh, the technologies exist and all the uh, electrical engineers have been writing books for years about this, the technologies exist to have electrical systems that are almost completely based on renewables with a, you know, probably a trivial uh, inputs of, uh, of electricity from other sources, um, and for the network to be used to balance uh, a massive uh, number of 
sources of electricity. So basically you would have um, uh, solar panels, you would have heat pumps, you would have uh, wind uh, windmills of the latest uh, technologies. They would all feed into the grid, which would be completely decentralized. Now, of course, this is of no interest whatever to the people who actually control the grid, which is energy comp- electricity companies. So uh, they've got no interest in developing the technology uh, in that direction. Um, but clearly, if we had a power which represented the public, um, these changes could be made with technology about which the engineers have already known uh, for a couple of decades. So I think the, the, these issues really drive me back to issues of uh, power and of wealth uh, and of the people who control society and the way that they uh, represent a massive obstruction to the sort of change that's needed. Yeah, when I was reading your book, I was thinking about, I wonder what historians will say about us when our greatest technological achievement of the era, the computerization of our uh, thinking, of our technologies in general, that we didn't apply it as much as we should have applied it to coming up with alternative fuels, alternative uh, technologies in which we wouldn't be burning so much fossil fuel. I, was, I keep wondering, what are they going to say? And you write, in a century's time, when the impacts of global warming will be much more ruinous, than they are today, people may look back at this failure as collective madness. There may be an analogy with the way that people today view Europe's descent to the barbaric slaughter of the First World War a century ago as collective madness. It was madness, but it had definite political, social, and economic causes that historians have sought to understand. You then add that you will try to do likewise with this madness that is producing global warming. To you, what explains why we don't recognize the madness in the moment that you see happening today, that historians, you believe, will be trying to explain a century from now? Well, uh, again, uh, Chuck, you, you, you know, if, if, if I can compliment you, 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 you do ask very big and, and very cutting-edge questions. And I'm, I hope I don't uh, disappoint your viewers by saying that these issues are very big and very complicated. And I suppose um, I, I, I'm, I'm not the youngest. Um, and if you'd asked me 30 or 40 years ago, I, I would have had a, a sort of conviction that I don't have now that we would be able to uh, transform society. I, I would have used the word revolution for sure. Um, that was the way I saw things then. I don't any less believe than I did then that society has to be transformed. I'm not as clear as I was then about how that is going to uh, happen. I suppose one thing that I, I, I want to say is that, I, I mean, I have grandchildren who who are young, uh, five and two, uh, my two grandsons. And uh, I do worry about uh, the world that they're going to grow up in. And you do see a lot of um, articles and discussions. And I think this is a very real phenomenon. This is, this is very emotional for all of us. When people realize that uh, this climate change thing is happening and that, uh, I mean, not the, wor- not that the world uh, is a great place, even not taking that into account for, for millions of people. Uh, but what is for sure about climate change is it's going to exacerbate the poverty, uh, the injustice, uh, the extremes of inequality, uh, the wars, uh, and all the other things that uh, make, have made many of us hate capitalism from the time that uh, we could understand it. Um, it's going to exacerbate all that, 
And there's no way out of that, not for my grandchildren and, and, and not for anybody else's. Um, what I would say, though, is um, it irritates me a lot when I see uh, commentators, as uh, we had when the school student strikes began, uh, we had some sort of uh, commentary in the newspapers to the effect of, oh, we're sorry, guys, our generation has let you down. And I really don't accept that. I mean, I think our generation, uh, many of us, uh, we're involved in all sorts of attempts to change the world, to make it a better place in the way that we saw it. Now, yes, we failed uh, in many respects. In some respects, we've not failed. Um, obviously, if you think about uh, the relations between uh, men and women, the sort of patriarchy that existed when I uh, was younger has really been pushed back. Um, uh, racism has, in many ways, been pushed back. Uh, we've seen the resurgence, yes, in, in recent years. But I just I, I, I would say in, in the broader scheme of things, in, in terms of uh, going past capitalism, clearly uh, our generation has not uh, done that in the way that uh, we set out to do. But I don't think it's us that has failed. I think, uh, you know, to be analytically correct, we have to say that uh, the people who do have the power and the wealth, uh, the ruling class in society, are the ones that are really uh, responsible for this. And uh, that would take me back to the Rio process. And the, the, the marker is very clear, 1992. If you read the uh, documents that were adopted by that conference, it accepts the science in, in absolutely clear uh, language. And I think it was a great achievement of, of uh, science that uh, the scientists were able to see global warming coming in the 1980s, and, and not a small achievement that they convinced the politicians so I think then we have to focus on the fact that it's uh, the political system that did accept this warming uh, effect was taking place. I mean, yes, climate science denial was an issue. And yes, that was embraced by the oil companies back then in the 90s, although they've since sort of pulled away from it. But um, I think the real issue was that the, the political elite as a whole accepted that global warming was happening, but uh, convinced themselves, to go back to our earlier uh, conversation, convinced themselves that... Um, market mechanisms uh, was the way to uh, tackle it. And that's proved, I mean, not only you know, woefully inadequate, just doesn't do it justice. Those are not strong enough words. It's, it is a historical failure. Uh, and that's what made me uh, think of the analogy with the slide into war in Europe uh, prior to 1914. One last question for you, Simon. We've been speaking with writer, historian, researcher of energy, Russia, Ukraine, and the Caspian, Simon Perani, author of Burning Up, A Global History of Fossil Fuel Consumption. You can find out more about Simon at simonperani.com, and you can follow him on Twitter at simonperani, P-I-R-A-N-I, and then the number one. One last question for you, and as we do with all of our guests, Simon, our final question is what we call the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, our audience is going to hate your response. So if you thought all those other questions were hellish, sit down, my friend. You write that fossil fuel consumption swelled by more than half in the quarter century between 1990, when the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC, issued its first assessment report, formally urging a strategy to reduce consumption and by 2015. Now, we had Nathaniel Rich recently on the show. He His book is about how the U.S. killed the possibility of an international deal that would have addressed global warming way back in the early 1990s when we could have mitigated the worst aspects of climate change, including some that are happening right now. Nathaniel quotes someone who he says played a pivotal role in the killing of that agreement. Then 
President George H.W. Bush's chief of staff, John Sununu. Sununu explains that any anti-global warming pack would never happen, saying to Nathaniel, it couldn't have ever happened because the leaders in the world at that time were all looking to seem like they were supporting the policy without having to make hard commitments that would cost their nations serious resources. That was the dirty little secret of the time. Is that still our dirty little secret that fossil fuel uh, rates of consumption continue to climb because what voters want is to hear the words and seem like they are participating in fighting climate change but are not willing to make the sacrifice, the commitments to do so? The first uh, point I'd make in answering it is that this all looks very different uh, from the global south. So Uh, I have a friend in India who's very active in the environmental movement there. And I mean, every time he emails me and uh, says he's written an article and so on, uh, your readers can uh, look him up online. It's Nagraj Adve, that's N-A-G-R-A-J, and then A-D-V-E. And uh, every time he writes, he's writing about things that are happening now to agriculture, things that are happening now in terms of flooding, things that are happening now uh, in terms of the the absolutely terrible heat wave uh, they've just suffered uh, in India, which is a killer, in lo- a killer of large numbers of people. Uh, we also had a heat wave in Europe, but fortunately didn't kill people in those numbers. So I think already uh, the reality of this looks quite different uh, from the global south, and I think that will uh, be a factor in this. Um, as for your question about the the rich world populations. Uh, uh, you know, are we complicit in this global system that uh, has such uh, terrible oppression and exploitation and militarism at its heart? Yes, of course we are to a certain extent. And I think that's something a lot of uh, progressives in the first world have, have long uh, thought about. Um, to me, that means we have a, uh, a duty to uh, resist um, and again, that's something, given the nature of the show, a, a lot of your listeners, I'm sure, do. Uh, what gives me hope, I think, is the uh, school school pupils movement, not just because, uh, of course, we, we can all get into this thing of, of looking for every uh, sign of uh, things changing. I think the movement starting there is quite profound. I was talking to somebody the other day who was saying, well, w- where are the university students? And I sort of thought, look, you know, they'll fall into line. Uh, yes, it's been university students in the past who perhaps initiated social movements. But I think people coming into uh, political action and political action precisely directed against that hypocrisy that you talk about at the political level, uh, people coming into that sort of political action when they're 11, 12, 13, 14 years old, I think that's quite profound. I think that could uh, be a force uh, for considerable change in in the years to come. And I hope it is. You know, here in Chicago, we are going through uh, airport expansion, runway expansion at O'Hare International Airport, one of the most busy airports in the world. And there was no debate about it. There was no discussion when it comes to climate change or global warming or its impact on greenhouse gases, emissions or anything like that. And uh, so that's gone completely uncontested. Extinction Rebellion is just starting here in the States. We've interviewed uh, some of the leaders of the original movement, some of the people who started the original movement in the UK. And I'm hoping that it comes here more because 
things like real, uh, airport expansion need to be contested, not just completely allowed to go and without any concerns for climate change. Simon, I have a lot of hope for them, too. I really appreciate you being on the show. This is a fantastic book, and we just barely skimmed the surface of this book. One of the most in- interesting parts to me is the amount of waste that's in the uh, use of fossil fuels, uh, kind of the process of heavy intensive industries like steel, how there's so much waste in it and just wasting of fossil fuels being burned. So, Simon, I really appreciate you being on our show, but everybody should be checking out your book, Burning Up, A Global History of Fossil Fuel Consumption. And I want to thank listener Paolo for suggesting you be on our show during Listener Suggestion Month. Thank you so much for being on the air with us this week. Okay, and thank you. Take care. Thank you. Manufacturing Descent since 1996. This is hell. Neoliberal fascism is the new authoritarian flavor of the day, and it sounds frightening. The brutality of neoliberalism combined with the violence of fascism. What will these hate-filled pricks think of next? In a few, we'll have the return of one of your very favorite guests to appear on This Is Hell over the years. Cultural critic, writer, university professor, journalist, and a member of the board of directors for Truth Out. Henry Giroux is author of the new book to be published Tuesday, July 16th, that you can order right now at henrygiroux.com and find out more about it as well. That book's called The Terror of the unforeseen. It's time for nasty, gnarly, naughty, nauseous, nerdy, icky, drippy, sticky, goopy, gloppy, globby, gory, rotten history. In 1793, 226 years ago, the French journalist and politician Jean-Paul Marat was murdered in his bathtub, which was bad for Marat, but great for the artist David who then went on to create one of my favorite paintings ever, The Death of Marat, which is sometimes referred to as the first modernist painting because it was of a man suffering from a skin condition and a stabbing. During the French Revolution, Marat, editor of the newspaper, Friend of the People, was a fervent supporter of the radical Jacobins, yet never subscribed to the magazine. In his writings, he fiercely defended the rights of the lower classes, which is cool, while advocating widespread executions of revolutionary prisoners, which is so not cool. Marat's uncompromising stance alarmed Republicans of the more moderate Girondin faction and Charlotte Corday, a young Girondin sympathizer from a monarchist family, managed to talk her way into his room for posing by posing as a fan with important information for him. The letter in his hand in the tub. For three years, Marat had been suffering from a painful skin disease and could find relief only by sitting in a bath laced with medicinal herbs. That's where Corday found him, with a board laid across his bathtub as a writing desk, which is weird because, I kid you not, that's how I used to study in college, in a bathtub with a board across the top. Sit in the tub, put a plank across the top, and force myself to, myself to study. Kind of hard to get out of the tub and get distracted when you're in the tub. After a short conversation, Corday suddenly pulled out a kitchen knife and plunged it into Marat's chest, killing him. By the way, the knife is spectacular, the knife handle on the painting. Neighbors who heard Marat scream rushed in and 
immediately seized Corday four days later. After a quick trial, she was put under the guillotine, something I'm certain Murat would have fully supported. But the thing that gets me about David's painting is the big blank expanse that dominates the picture. It draws you in, it sucks you in like the drain in a sink or water running down a well of emptiness that is full of nothing, and then you snap out it, and, and there's a dead guy laying in a tub with a knife sticking out of his chest as he holds the note, the fraud that gained entrance for the murderer to kill a bloodthirsty revolutionary. Damn, I love that painting. To be had a guy had to get killed for it to happen. On the other hand, Marat was kind of a dick. Not that Corday was all that great either. Man, revolutionary France was apparently rife with murderous jagoffs. In Rotten History, 1863, 156 years ago, riots broke out in New York City among crowds of mostly white working class men angered by a new law passed by Congress instituting a draft to raise troops for the American Civil War because the North, despite what you may have heard, not too keen on fighting a war to end slavery. The rioters' lack of enthusiasm for the Union cause was inspired by fear of having to compete for jobs with newly freed black men, as well as resentment against rich men who, if drafted, could afford to pay a high fee to have substitutes enter the army in their place. The draft riots continued for four days, quickly took on an ugly racial aspect, with African Americans violently attacked throughout the city and their homes, businesses, and churches ransacked or burned because nothing says opposition to a war to free slaves like beating up the actual potential slaves. By the time the violence was put down by military troops, 120 people were dead, most of them black, and the dead included 11 killed by lynching, by hanging, and more than 2,000 injured. In, injured. in the wake of the uh, rioting, uh, African Americans fled Manhattan by the thousands, many moving across the river to neighboring Brooklyn. Following the riots, wealthy people who were targeted by those opposed to the draft because the rich could easily evade military service through bribes and proxies. They reportedly came to the aid of black New Yorkers, who were also the targets of the rioters, providing their fellow victims with housing, although I'm betting there's a lot more to that story. By August 19th, a little bit over a month and a week later, the draft would resume in New York without incident, with New Yorkers, especially black New Yorkers, playing a key role in the Union's victory over those racist a-holes who are fighting to continue being racist a-holes. That's Rotten History, and this week's question from hell is, what was Baron Trump what has Baron Trump been up to this whole time? What has Baron Trump been up to this whole time? All repi replies read on air. During the next hour of this week's This Is Hell, this week's winner gets one of the new pieces of This Is Hell merchandise that we will have available for listeners at the annual Listener Appreciation Party and Art Show on Saturday, July 27th at Carrie's, and that is the new This Is Hell trucker's cap. Again, the question from hell is, what has Baron Trump been up to this whole time? Leave your response right now at facebook.com slash thisishellradio. Listen during our next hour to see if you have one coming up on this week's This Is Hell. We will have the return of a listener favorite who has discovered neoliberal fascism has taken hold in the U.S. After, climate, after we've discussed climate change at the beginning of our show and our next conversation on authoritarianism, we will discuss how the Cold War divided African Americans from Africans in the fight against overthrowing white supremacy on the Cape. And if climate change, authoritarianism, and apartheid ain't enough, we go back to the battle for Lincoln Park and how the fight over one neighborhood's future created a present-day Chicago that has rampant racial and economic segregation. During the moment of truth, Jeff Dorchin wonders why the right thinks anyone cares about their feelings, that Dems are too far left. We'll also have listener feedback 
What Alex has been up to on social media will tell you what's happening on our Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell. We'll keep reminding you about our party. Of course, we'll have the question from hell. We want to thank some listeners for sharing the show online, for supporting the show online. We'll tell you what's happening on upcoming episodes of This Is Hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, Chuck Mertz, producing this week's show, Alex Jerry, Noam Chomsky, called This Is Hell Sanity and Talk Radio. So clearly and sadly, Noam's gone insane. This is hell. Authoritarianism's flavor of the day is... Well, we're about to find out how authoritarianism is playing itself out today in the U.S. and sadly around the world. It's time for a fan favorite, and what better time to have him return than during Listener Appreciation Month when all our guests are suggested by you, our listening audience, our guest today, cultural critic, writer, university professor, journalist, and a member of the board of directors for Truthout, Henry Giraud, is author of a new book to be published on Tuesday that you can find out more about at henrygiraud.com. That book is going to be called The Terror of the Unforeseen. Welcome back to This Is Hell, Henry. Hi, Chuck. Good to be back. Good oh, to my, hear your voice. Great to hear your voice, sir. It's always just, it just makes me feel good all over. For whatever reason, even though what we're going to be discussing is horrible, we are only hosting listener-suggested guests throughout the entire month of July. And Henry was suggested by a listener by the name of John, who writes, Mr. Mertz, please have Henry Giroux on for an hour. How about better half of an hour or more than that let's see john john has just won a secret mystery prize from this is hell and you too can if you suggested a guest that actually gets on air this month send your suggestions to chuck at this is hell.com today we're having henry on to talk about a little bit about his book but mostly about his latest writing at ragazine ragazine.cc titled the age of jackals which is incredibly timely and i really wanted to discuss it with henry on the show uh like i said you can find out more about henry at henry henryageru.com and you can follow henry on twitter at henry Giroux. first let's just get to this really quick about the title of your book what is the unforeseen that is so terrifying today, Henry? Well, I, I think that what's unforeseen and what's terrifying is the assumption that uh, democracies could somehow def- defend itself, that, that, that democracies could somehow defend themselves against authoritarianism, and that uh, the last place that we would see these authoritarian impulses emerge would be in societies that have a long-standing tradition, at least in name, uh, to say the very least, of of, uh, democratic principles, ideals, and institutions. And all of a sudden, what we are seeing is the almost unimaginable, an almost unimaginable catastrophe, and that is not only is democracy going into the sink, but almost all the basic institutions that matter in the United States are now so overrun by finance capital coupled with uh, an insurgent right populism, that it's difficult to imagine well, what the United States looked like after the, after, the, after the Second World War in terms of its democratic ideals and institutions. So it's a, it's a very scary moment in the history of the country, but of course it's also a scary moment in, across the globe because it seems to me that this right-wing pop, authoritarian populism is spreading like wildfire, edged on, of course, by uh, the President of the United States who seems to have a love affair with every dictator that has committed some of the most ruthless crimes in history. So are they mimicking, just mimicking what the United States is doing? Or is do you think the United States, do you think the right in the United States is actively exporting that kind of uh, authoritarianism? I, I, I think it's, it's probably both. I, I mean, I, I think that 
you know, authoritarianism takes root in different ways in different countries, based upon the traditions, based upon the threats, based upon the configuration of economic power. But I think the, the, the real issue here is that Trump has, has basically legitimated uh, a new kind of vocabulary for authoritarians, whether it be around fake news or whether it be around his support of lawlessness or whether it be around his, fat, his, uh, his racism. I mean, you know, this is the most powerful country in the world that all of a sudden is, is saying that we have every right to consider some people subhuman. We have every right to put children in concentration with a monster detention centers that hawk back to concentration camps. We have every right to, to, to basically allow young, young children to die in these camps. Uh, and we have every right to use the police as a as an instrument of state terrorism. I mean, this is a, you know, to say the very least. I mean, this is a a form of legitimation that really does not spell well for the rest of the globe, and it and it enormously enables, in many ways, the legitimation of practices that, as Fitton Fitton O'Toole writes in the Irish Times, that these these are all trial runs for fascism. You know, you you keep seeing how far you can go. Uh, in, in order to really reach a, a full-fledged fascist state. And Trump provides the legit, legitimating ideology for that. He, he, he's the bullhorn. You know, you can, you know you, when you talk about fake news, you say, well, the president of the United States really gets it. You talk, you talk about a war on immigration, you know, you just look at the United States. They know what's going on. I mean, you know what happened in the Second World War, prior to the Second World War. I mean, Hitler studied basically the eugenicist movement in the United States in order to prime up his basic racialist theories. And I, and I think that what we're seeing now is people are looking at the United States and saying, look, how far can he go? Because that, that'll be the marker for how far we can go. And that's what I find so dangerous. Is, when, I was, when I was listening to your response, I started thinking, is what is so dangerous, American racism and white supremacy? Are, is the thing that frightens the rest of the world our racism, our white supremacy that we try to deny, and yet we either intentionally or not export. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, that certainly frightens the rest of the world, but I think that what also frightens the rest of the world is a kind of war culture that the United States uh, is engaged in that touches every aspect of foreign and domestic policy. I mean, this is a president who's stuck on a kind of hyper-individualism that almost speaks to a, a, a kind of collective madness. And I, and I think that what people also recognize is that, uh, you know, that we're not just talking about racism and we're not just talking about the, the dispossession of, of, of people. We're not just talking about putting people in jail. We're talking about an, an economic system that elevates a culture of cruelty to heights that we've never seen before, that in, in, in many ways has created and normalized an ideology in which compassion just disappears. Uh, you know, and markets become, as I've said many times, you know, the, the overriding template to control all of society. You know, Adorno once said, you can't talk about fascism unless you can talk about capitalism. And I, and I, and I think that that's what many people fear. They fear the power of money and the f power of capital, the power of financial capital, and they fear the way that the United States runs roughshod. Over, over all aspects of, of what might be called what constitutes a decent global life. You can't have, Chuck, this kind of massive inequality in the United States and the rest of the world and talk about democracy. You know, you, and that's not just about racism. I mean, that's not just about basically making people disposable. Uh, that's about ruining people's lives uh, in, in many ways, not just working class people, but also middle class people. So, I mean, when you look at the, the, the engines of austerity, financialization, deregulization, 
deregulation. When you look at the way in which these policies are being promoted both domestically and in terms of other countries in which working people all of a sudden find themselves without any real wages, the weakening of unions, the destruction of public goods, the the increasing precarity of work, and so forth and so on. I mean, you're talking about life values being eliminated. You're talking about the basic needs that people have to stay alive, not to get ahead, to just survive being eroded. And that constitutes a global crisis, not to mention the crisis that's being waged under the, the name of neoliberalism against the planet. I mean, my God, I mean, you know, who wants to live in the Midwest anymore, <laughs> right? I mean, who, you know, what, what does it mean when all of a sudden we have temperatures of 110 degrees becoming normal and you have a president who, seen, who suggested the other day that no, no administration has done more than him to promote uh, ecological and, and environmental reforms? How's that one? I mean, that's right out of 1984, isn't it? <laughs> so is democracy flawed? Why does it fail in the face of authoritarianism? And if it has a flaw, what is its flaw? Well, I, I think it fails when it loses its, 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 its willingness to take seriously the social contract. I think when it loses what I would call its, its deeply important socialist ideals, when it, when it, when it cuts off the question of economic justice from the question of liberty and the question of freedom, then all of a sudden you create the grounds for capital for destroying and making unworkable questions of liberty and questions of freedom. Liberty is meaningless when you're struggling to just survive. It's meaningless when you find yourself in a world in which the only thing you can think about is whether you're going to make a choice between medicine or food the end of the world for many people. And I think that when you look at FDR's four, you know, four freedoms, nobody wants to talk about economic freedom except Bernie Sanders and, and others. And I, and I think that that's where democracy failed. It failed to control capital. It failed to control markets. It let the market become basically not just a template for the economy, but for a template for the entire society. And it lose completely lost sight of human needs. Democracy, look, democracy has to be fought for. You have to have informed citizens. Now, just step back a minute and ask yourself, what happened to the commitment in a democracy like the United States to public and higher education, to making sure that everybody, we had a GI Bill, you know, we had public institutions that were sprouting everywhere, and then all of a sudden in the 70s, you have this neoliberal revolution, which says that public goods are the enemy of democracy. They're the enemy of markets that says that the welfare state makes people lazy, that says that the only, individual, the only kind of responsibility that matters is individual responsibility. So systemic corruption and the ability to translate private issues into larger public considerations disappears. And all of a sudden, you have this narcissistic, self-interested, war against all, ethos of survival of the fittest. Democracy begins to look like a reality TV show in which the only person left, there's only one person left in the island. So you couple, it seems to me, massive amounts of inequality, deregulation, austerity issues, with a decline of an ideology that enshrines equality and social justice, and that's where we are today. Henry, in your response there, I just looked over at my New York Times, and I just think that today's front page of the New York Times really kind of exemplifies exactly what you're talking about when it comes to 
our game show reality when it comes or reality show reality when it comes to democracy here in the U.S. The headline in the New York Times today is Sanders struggles to connect but refuses to run on personality. What does that kind of headline tell you about the state of democracy here in the United States? Sanders- it says that the media is complicit with fascism. It says that the media has sold itself out for ratings. It says that the only issues that matter are personal issues, so it collapses the public into the private. It says that the only show in town that matters has to be a comedy. It says that we don't have to care about human justice. We don't have to address serious public issues. We don't have to address the fact that the, the planet is under siege and is dying. We don't have to accept... We don't have to address the fact that 40% of all people in the United States are struggling just to stay alive and, for the most part, find themselves in jobs that they hate or are utterly unemployed. We don't talk about the fact that racism has raised its ugly head again in such a way that it feels like we're living in the Jim Crow period. That's what it means. So what is neoliberal fascism? Isn't all fascism neoliberal? That is, that it's based on, to some degree, the corporate takeover of the state and its privatization? Oh, I think absolutely. I, I mean, I think that when I talk about neoliberal fascism, I, mean, I think there are a couple of things to remember here. You know, in spite of what some critics are saying, some critics are saying, of course, it's not fascism because, you know, we haven't put people in concentration camps and committed massive genocide. Well, fascism comes in many forms. And it, and it seems to me that the ideology today is like a marketing strategy. You know, how far can we go to basically, uh, in, in some way, both couple the conditions of massive inequality, massive austerity, massive, massive suffering on the part of the workforce, in, in a way to sort of generate the anger that comes out of that, so as to suggest that the economic system has nothing to do with it, that it's not about capitalism, extreme capitalism, casino capitalism, that it's really about... It's really about hating the other. It's really about immigrants. It's really about blacks. It's really about, it seems to me, people who, the criminals who are coming across the border. So you have this coupling at one level of the massive suffering and conditions produced by extreme capitalism. And as a result of the anger that has emerged from that uh, on the part of many people who see themselves as sinking, who no longer believe in the neoliberal dream that everybody's going to be able to make it and somehow you know, end up rich like uh, they used to. They used to promote in that program the millionaires. Uh, that that's 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 a lie. But instead, in, instead in, of of being informed enough and analytical enough to understand the conditions that produce their own anger, you have the tyrants who come along and and basically provide simplistic answers for a populace that's relatively uninformed about the conditions that uh, bear down on them and make their lives miserable. And that's something new. I mean, that's emerging of finance, finance, what I call finance capitalism, and the ideology of cruelty. You point, Those two elements have, have produced something very new in the United States. You point out that Trump's abuses of executive uh, privilege reflect new levels of disdain for the separation of power. As these incidents show, we live in dangerous times, or what we might be called the uh, age of jackals. That is an era ruled by the architects of an apocalyptic nationalism, regressive populism, brutally repressive and racist forms of authoritarianism. How is it apocalyptic? What makes it uh, this kind of nationalism? What makes it apocalyptic? It's apocalyptic because it's organized. It's, it's, it's central, it's central uh, principle, organizing principle is the unity of white people. It's about white nationalism. It's not just ultra-nationalism. It's white nationalism. And, and, and it seems to me that when you infuse it with that racist logic, that echoes a period in history that we should be very alarmed about. I mean, this is not really just simply a nationalism that seems to suggest that, uh, 
you know, we're, we're harking back to a period of uh, jingoistic exceptionalism. We're the best country in the world. We can't do anything wrong. You know, we have to impose our way of life on everybody else. It's not just that. It's that plus the assumption that the public sphere can only be inhabited by white people, that the public sphere basically has to purge itself of those people who are making whites victims in some fundamental way. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a very dangerous nationalism because it's basically about racial and social cleansing, as yeah. well as about the militarism that it imposes on, on, on other countries uh, that it considers you know, outside of the pale of what it, what it supports. Does neoliberalism make people fascist? Neoliberalism doesn't make them fascist. It makes them, it makes them indifferent to the forces that bear down in their lives because it separates and it isolates them. It atomizes them. It alienates them. It makes them angry. It makes them feel powerless. It doesn't mean that it automatically translates into fascism. It just means that people are more susceptible to simplistic answers, more susceptible to the idea that one man can save them. One person can do everything. One person has the answer. One person can really fight the corporate elite when that person is actually a member of the corporate elite. So in, in, in a sense that what neoliberalism does in a, in a very profound way, in my estimation, is it, it produces an incredible form of individual and collective vulnerability. People don't have the resources. People are, time has become, uh, in, in, in many ways, uh, a burden. Education is out of reach. Basic, basic needs around health care and education don't seem accessible. It doesn't automatically translate into fascism. It could translate into something else. I mean, it could translate into, into powerful social movements that connect social, questions of social justice and, and economic equality with questions of identity, with questions of personal and political rights. But it seems to me that we've lost that battle so far. I mean, I think that it's reviving, thank God. Uh, to a whole range of people, from Bernie Sanders to the Congress people and a number of young, young politicians to people who are reinventing the notion of democratic socialism. But I think that until we take questions of education seriously and begin to recognize that we need a narrative, you know, a narrative that touches people's lives, a story that can connect their personal experiences with, it, with modes of analysis in which they can rethink the conditions of global capitalism so that they don't blame immigrants for global capitalism, <laughs> the effects of global capitalism. Well, why do we fall for those false narratives? You write, this is an age dominated by dangerous narratives that are free of evidence, that bulge with misrepresentations, that are adamant about destroying any semblance of not just truth, but morality, social responsibility, and justice. How is neoliberalism, how is that conducive to these false narratives that lack evidence, and why do we fall for them? It's a terrific question, and it's one that isn't often raised. And I think the answer to that question is, what is distinctive about the age of neoliberalism that we find ourselves in today is that the financial elite control the commanding institutions of education. And it seems to me that makes it very difficult to, for, it makes it very easy for them to normalize the very conditions of neoliberalism that bear down on people's lives in terrible ways. You know, that robbed them of the most basic services, destroyed the welfare state, defined people who are on welfare as basically lazy and stupid, and, 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 and of course, uh, creating a, a, a spreading network of groups that are considered disposable. And I, and I think that when you, when, you, when, you, when you have Fox News, you know, and you have so little money being channeled into public radio, into public television, into alternative media sites, alternative newspapers... Uh, 
You know, this is what you get. You, you get a climate of ignorance. I mean, ignorance in the United States, Chuck, is no longer innocent. Innocence is a weapon. It's become a weapon. It's become a tool of power. And it's not just about the absence of knowing. It's about producing misrepresentations that mislead people about the conditions under which they find themselves. And I, and I think that the ecosystem, the social media, uh, the, the concentration of power in relatively few hands around the established and mainstream media is a very powerful weapon that is far more powerful than simply sending troops into the streets, than simply mobilizing the National Guard. That, that's, out, that's somewhat outdated. In some ways, I mean, that stuff is so visibly cruel and stupid and unnecessary that they actually try, although Trump is stupid around this, but they try, most countries try to hold back on this. They don't need to do that anymore because they absolutely control the airwaves. They, they control the media. They control the means of communication. And it seems to me this is one of the places that you pay in an age of excessive neoliberalism when the concentration of wealth is not just about people who basically own banks. They own all the cultural apparatuses. They own all the educational apparatuses. Neoliberalism is the most powerful public pedagogy, the most powerful ideology we have ever seen, in my estimation, maybe outside of the Middle Ages and the notion of Christianity and divine right. Uh, it is enormously powerful, enormously seductive, because it appeals to a notion of freedom that centers on the individual while at the same time destroying any notion of the social and any notion of social justice. Henry, were critics aware of the dangers of the threat of neoliberalism when neoliberalism, before neoliberalism was initiated? I think that people had a sense of what the excesses of capitalism could certainly do. I mean, economists such as Shumta and others, I mean, they saw, they, they saw something in, in capitalism that was very dangerous, that had to be controlled. But I, but I think that, you know, some, it, it, I think the backlash to the 1960s was so severe, so, so much more successful than anybody had, had envisioned. I mean, you know, when you get the Powell memo and you, you get all these sort of right-wingers saying, hey, look, we cannot allow what they call the excess of democracy to take root in the United States. We cannot allow minorities to be educated and all of a sudden to flood the voting polls with uh, more, more liberal positions. We have to put a stop to this. And they did. And they did. Because they recognized that the war over power and authority was a war of ideas. And that it wasn't just about imposing, in the most crude sense, modes of control on, on various populations. And I think the left missed that. I mean, we saw hints of it in the 1960s, uh, with SDS, and of course some elements of the civil rights movement. But I think in the eight, from the 80s on, education never became central, I, I think, to a, a leftist platform, a progressive and leftist platform that seemed to suggest that, that you, you know, you're not going to have a, a viable social movement unless you have an informed and educated public. You write that language has been turned on its head to mean its opposite. Oh, freedom, turned on its head. You're right. I, freedom now often uh, signifies the freedom to hate. Work now often means wage slavery and so on. Now yeah. we have these terms, uh, you know, for the uh, the facilities at the border. Some people call them concentration camps, which obviously says that it is an injustice. Other calls them. Others call them detention centers, which makes them sound like they are sites of justice. 
how do we overcome one place having two completely opposite meanings? No, I, I mean, we need to reclaim. You need to reclaim the language of social justice and the language of equality. You need to reclaim it. You need to fight this. You need to fight the emptying out of language on its own terms. Freedom is not just a freedom to hate. I'm sorry. You know, freedom has a, a much more noble ideal and meaning in, 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 in the history of the United States. You know, the freedom, the freedom from poverty, freedom from slavery, freedom from injustice. I mean, at the very least, for all of FDR's problems, at least he talked about freedom in that way. And I think that Bernie Sanders, I mean, for all of the criticism that people might want to make of him, and the New York Times, of course, hates Sanders because they see him as a threat to the kind of corporate ideology that uh, they invest in. But at least these people are now inventing a language around democratic socialism in which the question of equality, Chuck, economic equality, is on the table. I mean, we know from recent surveys that even people on the left who unfortunately appear on Fox News, I'm really against them doing that. Uh, they shouldn't legitimate that station. I mean, I, but even when they, even to that audience, when they say we need to tax the rich, there's huge support for this. There's huge support in the public for a whole range of issues that have basically left issues. You know that, and I know that, whether it's the freedom for abortion or, or whether it's about you know, uh, providing social services and national health care. The public wants these things, but you have a political system that's completely controlled by money, completely. And it seems to me, until we begin to rethink what politics is about, I mean, I, for one, really believe that. And I've written about this, you know, as you well know. I mean, this last piece that, you know, what we saw in, in, in recently abroad, you know, in Hong Kong should really wake us up. Because while I'm not going to say elections are useless at the local and, and some state levels, I mean, you really do want to get the jerks out of the, the boards of education and so forth and so on and away from the mayor's seats and the governor's seats. But we need direct action. You need, need to find a way to educate people through demonstrations, but you need to find ways to create movements outside of the demonstrations. And those movements have to be unified. They have to bring that they have to find the thread that works through whether we're talking about movements around gay rights, the ecological movements, movements around race, and the thread is, is social justice and economic equality. That's and maybe one could argue even the environment. And it seems to me to bring those people together and then to begin to engage in direct action. What ha would happen if a million people showed up at the border and just refused to shut it down? Just shut it down until Trump basically, uh, or shut down Washington until Trump and, and his acolytes, his Vichy Republicans, all of a sudden found themselves in a position that was untenable. You can't kill a million people. You can't do it. And I think the old suggestion about power to the people is probably more relevant today than it's ever been particularly in terms of what it means to mobilize collective action. You were saying how you don't necessarily approve of people who are on the left going on Fox News. Isn't getting the message out to those on the right, getting a progressive message out to those on the right, more important than delegitimating Fox News? No, I, I, I think that you missed the point. The people who are basically on the left who are asked to come on Fox News are usually people who basically share a position that Fox News uh, holds. 
For instance, you know, to bring people on who are saying that, uh, yeah, we really need to control people at the border, that is a real issue. That just legitimates Fox News. I mean, I, I mean do you really think Fox News is going to invite people like me on? Do you really think they're going to invite Noam Chomsky? No. Not in a thousand years. So I, I think you have to ask yourself the question, you know, what exactly is the purpose of being on Fox News if it, it, it isn't about simply educating a public that... Uh, that they really probably are not racist, but are confused. I mean, at some level, I, I have to backtrack on this. You know, I, 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 your point is really crucial. I mean, we need to reach as many people as possible, and we can't assume that all of Trump's supporters are racist. I think that's nonsense. Right. Uh, I mean, there is certainly a hard core, but that group has to be talked to in ways that don't shame them and try very patiently to explain the conditions under which they find themselves and begin to make it clear that Trump is their enemy and that capitalism is not democracy. Not, it's not democracy. I'm sorry. And, at least in its extreme forms. Uh, but, I, but, I, but I think we have to be careful. Let me use that term, if I may. We have to be careful about how we lend ourselves to these shows. For, personally, I don't want to be in a shouting match with right-wingers. Nobody listens to that. So the frame uh, around which those shows usually operate, to me, are not very constructive in terms of what they mean to educate people. I mean, there are some conservative shows, yes, we should go on, and we should, we should have a legitimate conversation, and we should do everything we can to educate people in ways that offer up a new vocabulary and a new narrative. So I, I want to backtrack that a little bit. We are speaking with Henry Giroux. Henry was suggested by listener John this month during our listener-suggested guest month here on This Is Hell as we show our appreciation to all of our listeners throughout the month. You can find out more about Henry by going to henryagiroux.com. You write, consider the consequences of neoliberal policies that operate according to the idea that economic and property rights are more important than human rights. Why are we seemingly more willing to expand economic and property rights than we are to expand human rights. Why do we give more rights to property than people? I think we give more rights to property than people because I think that logic has been drummed into people from day one for about 200 years since the beginning that the country was founded. And it just got accelerated. I mean, it got accelerated to the point where we wanted, white people wanted to protect property from people who are of another color, blacks uh, or poor. And then all of a sudden we turned corporations into people uh, and who had who had individual rights, and now we have a Supreme Court that basically says that corporate and property rights are far more important than human rights to the degree that we would support ecological measures that basically are going to destroy the planet. So it, it it seems to me this has been a long process of education, right? I mean, it's, I mean, you know, you don't have a worker section in the newspaper; you have a business section. You know, you don't have people talking about, on the radio, talking about the rights of, of, of working class people. You have people talking about the rights of the rich and how, how much fun they are. And let's, let's explore their lifestyles. We have a language of lifestyles that's linked to the language of property that becomes the dreamscape for the only way in which we can imagine a better world. Property is the only vehicle by which we can understand what it means to be successful. The more you own, the more successful you are. And in the midst of that, the language of human rights, the language of social justice, has basically disappeared. Remember, you know, since the 1980s, we don't talk about democracy anymore. You don't hear that word much. I mean, the language of community, the language of democracy, the language of social values, the language of social equality, the language of economic justice. The only place you hear that now is in these campaigns by a relatively few leftist politicians who are basically doing everything they can to revive that language. That language, in the, in the midst of the language of market propaganda, 
uh, in the midst of a fascism, which is basically a marketing strategy, telling us that immigrants are criminals and rapists, uh, his, 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 it's really up against the wall when it's in the midst of being controlled by cultural, uh, being excluded by cultural apparatuses that have no interest in it and actually see it as, as antithetical to any notion of what it means to be alive in America today. You mentioned Trump's destruction of civic values and the public institutions that nurture them. So what are the civic values you see Trump and his ilk destroying, and what are the civic values that you see on display in things like his July 4th celebration? Well, I, I think that I think when Trump confuses civic values with militarism, Trump confuses civic culture with private with the culture of, of, of private rights. I mean, he he, he confuses the, the 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 flight from public service as a virtue. He sees the culture of self-absorption as as being uh, a noble ideal for American society. I mean, he sees the language of vulgarity as a style that that basically increases ratings. So it, it seems to me that, I mean, when we talk about civic culture, we talk about those cultures that, that produce compassion, a sense of empathy, that give people a sense of historical consciousness, that educates people, that leads people to believe that the best things in life are not commodities, that citizenship is not just about being a shopper or being a taxpayer, that the public good matters, that in the network of interactions and, and, social, and, 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 and modes of solidarity, there's, there's joy to be found. There's a certain sense of happiness, a possibility for living a better life. I mean, what civic culture says at its essence, Chuck, is that we are networked, we're together. We live in a social world, we're connected. We're not isolated beings, we're not just consumers. And unless we have a sense of shared citizenship and shared justice and shared hope, (laughs) we're in trouble. Because otherwise we fall prey to a notion of self-interest and a notion of narcissism and self-absorption that makes us actually cruel, that makes us indifferent to human suffering. You know, you become a Tucker Carlson of the world. And, and, it, and it seems to me uh, that's where civic culture in some ways, when private happiness becomes a private right, when you have the systematic erosion of any notion of shared citizenship, when, when private, when, when it seems to me when, you know, and, and the elevation of self-interest takes precedence over any notion of the public good, you're on the road to fascism. I think there's this sense from people, from liberals, that once Trump is out of office, all of these problems will go away. Everything that he's done will go away. Uh, will f- what will the legacy of fake news be on U.S. politics? I mean, that is the, that, that to me is, is, so politically flawed and theoretically wrong, because it, it suggests that Trump is an idiosyncratic expression of something that shouldn't have happened, and he's just a clown. And when he's gone, all the forces that basically that were at work that produced Trump will disappear. You know, let's, let's I mean, at its worst, that kind of argument is such an attack on any historical understanding of what happened in the 1980s on in the United States that it's actually shameful. I mean, let's go back. Let's remember what Clinton did. 
He degraded the living conditions of working people. He deregulated the, 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 the banking system. He created a mass incarceration system. Uh, I mean, when, when you, he weakened the unions, there was a decline in real wages. In other words, what you had in both parties, and, uh, and I love the way Toni Morrison writes about this, you know, in, when she, in her new book when she says, you know, the forces of fascism are not to be found in one political party or another, they're be, to be found in both. And so it seems to me what, we, what Clinton and Obama and the rest of them did was they created, they sold themselves to Goldman Sachs. And in selling their souls to Goldman Sachs, they created, helped to create the conditions that brought Trump to power. Remember, Trump actually, in part, uh, mobilized his campaign around a critique of neoliberal policies, right? Now you have to, and, and, and uh, now you have to ask yourself the question, who created those policies? They were not just Republicans. They were the Clinton and the Obamas of the world. They were the Joe Bidens of the world. And so it seems to me to say that this is going to disappear when Trump leaves is absolutely nonsense. It's hardwired into the culture, it's a, and it's hardwired into the economy. You're talking about a finance culture that basically now has married and merged with the elements of white supremacy and white nationalism. And do you really think that these neo-Nazis are going to go away? Do you really believe that the political system will all of a sudden be free of the influence of big money? Do you really believe that the commanding institutions of society will no longer be controlled by the rich, that they'll give that up? And do you really believe that taxes will now become, become progressive and the, tax, and the rich will be taxed at 95% over $10 million? I don't think so. Do you? Oh, I don't. So you even point out how Trump is an attack on our critical sensibilities. So are political discussions that only focus on Trump, 24-7 coverage by Trump's opposition that only talks about Trump, that focus on the stupid things he says to undermine our political sensibilities. Uh, no, no. Is that, is that stuff just as dumb because it all revolves around Trump making us stupid? I, it, it, I love your questions. They're always better than my answers. I, I mean, I, <laughs> I, 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 I think you're absolutely right. I, I mean, the focus on Trump is not basically about real journalism. It's about journalists... It's about newspapers who want to increase their ratings. Trump is a media show. That's what Trump is. Trump lifts up his arm, and all of a sudden there's a headline in the New York Times or whatever saying Trump lift up, lifted up his arm today. What does that mean? I mean, it seems to me if they ignored him, if they stayed away from his tweets, if they started to talk about real issues like poverty, ecological, the, the ecological crisis, global warming, if they talked about militarism, if they talked about what's happening with Iran and how dreadful that is, if they talked about the fact that the United States has the richest nation in the world, actually should have free education for, for everybody, and that that money can come very simply, very simple, cut the military in half. You don't need that money. You don't need to spend you know, $760 billion, whatever it is, on the military. It's nonsense. I mean, if you had real issues that people could relate to, that somehow opened up their eyes to the conditions under which they find themselves, journalism would redeem itself. But that's not what we have. I mean, we have the Trump show. That's exactly what it is. It's the Trump show. I mean, Trump may be an idiot around every domain of knowledge that matters, but he's a marketing genius. <laughs> so you write in an age in which the jackals spread powerful forms of market, religious, political, and ideological fundamentalism, a new brutalism appears in which Everything sinks into chaos while producing a political earthquake. I want to focus on that fundamentalism part. How are they all forms of fundamentalism? What's so frightening about fundamentalism? 
What's so frightening about fundamentalism is it can't imagine a position outside of its own. And it imagines that people who take positions outside of its own are basically enemies to be destroyed. You know, you've heard the expression, the, 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 the media is the enemy of the American people. You've heard the expression that when Democrats did not stand up to applaud Trump at his idiotic State of the Union address, Trump agreed that that might be considered an act of treason. Uh, you, you, I mean, so it, it, it seems to me that, you know, what, what we're saying here is that there is a culture of ignorance in the, in, the, in the country that basically brutalizes people because it displaces their anger, their rage, and their understanding of what, what happens. You know, Marx had a saying. The saying was, you know, you can't just interpret the world, you have to transform it. He was partly wrong on that. You have to understand the world before you can transform it. And it seems to me that what the right has understood and what Trump understands is that it's absolutely crucial to keep people misinformed. It's absolutely crucial to ride the Trump show. The Trump show is basically nothing more than an extension of The Apprentice. That's all this is. You know, it's, you know, say crazy things, get people riled up, you know, create enemies. And I think to go back to your last question, I mean, the, the thing that's so crucial that's happening now with the language is that the fundamentalists, whether they political, evangelical, religious, I mean, these are people who can only live in a friend-enemy divide. And that gives rise to state terrorism. And in its worst moment, it gives rise to the disappearance of people. It gives rise to people being put in detention centers. It gives rise to forcing five-year-olds to take care of one-year-olds. It gives rise to the worst forms of cruelty. And I think that what we're seeing in the United States is a notion of political and ideological and economic fundamentalism that has reached its end point. It's reached its end point. I mean, in, in the sense that it's now in a trial run to see how far it can go to impose the worst fascist cruelties on people. First, we stop them at the border. Then we put them in detention centers. Then we find that people are, being, are dying and being sexually abused. How much further can we go? Next, we'll round up a million immigrants or whatever the figure is on Sunday and, and expel them from the country. I mean, what's next? I mean, how far do you have to go before you realize that you're living in a fascist state? Well, let me ask you that kind of question. I mean, we saw what happened with so many of the people who were challenging the state in the 60s, how so many of them were unfortunately assassinated. Uh, how much danger do you think those who oppose authoritarianism are in increasingly here in the United States? Oh, I think the danger is very real. I mean, when, when Trump makes the claim that there are people who would be very upset if he didn't maybe run for a third term or get reelected, I mean, you know, you, you know what you hear in that. You hear the threat of real violence. And Trump loves violence. He, he, he thrives on it because he's a bully. He's, a, he's, a, he's an over-bloated bully who basically likes to insult and dehumanize people. And I don't think Trump would have any trouble whatsoever in unleashing the kind of systemic terrorism on people that we've seen in the past. I mean, I know that may, may sound like a, a rather full-blown exaggeration, but I think in the exaggeration there are truths. And the question you have to ask yourself right now is what's, what, what's being prepared in the, in the country that could make that possible, that could possibly normalize and legitimate that next step? And I think we're seeing elements of state terrorism and, and violence uh, being used in ways that would suggest that uh, we're not, this is not the end of it.
We have been speaking with cultural critic, writer, university professor, journalist, and a member of the board of directors for Truth Out, Henry Giroux. He's got a new book out on Tuesday called The Terror of the Unforeseen. You can find out more about the book by going to henryagiroux.com. Henry's been on This Is Hell in the Past, and whenever we want to have a conversation on the specters of authoritarianism and fascism. We make certain to have Henry on our show. You may remember Henry being on most recently last June to talk about his book, American Nightmare. You can hear our original interview from 2009 with Henry at our Patreon page, patreon.com slash thisishell. We want to thank John for suggesting Henry as a guest during Listener Appreciation Month. One last question for you, Henry, and as we do with all of our guests, our final question is the question from hell. The question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer. Our audience is going to hate your response. You write, neoliberal policies refuse to recognize health care as a basic right that should be free, deny tuition-free college, obstruct laws for raising the minimum wage, and denounce necessary environmental reforms such as the Green New Deal. Meanwhile, these policies maintain massive degrees of inequality as millions of Americans are forced to choose between food and health care, between paying their bills and medicine, so they work 80 hours a week simply to be able to survive. Now, the Democratic Party of today is not the Democratic Party of the New Deal, and with today's campaign financing rules and laws and the influence money has over campaigns, the massive resources needed to fund campaigns vastly increased over the last 40 years. The anybody-but-Trump crowd wants the most electable, the candidate who can raise the most money to compete against Trump. So the Democratic Party has gone neoliberal. Isn't neoliberal, Henry, better than no liberal at all? (laughs) What you're saying is, isn't neoliberal better than fascism? Uh, The fact of the matter is that neoliberalism creates the conditions for fascism. And I think the real question here is, what... What's the first stage in dealing with Trump? The first stage is to make sure he's not elected. That's the first stage. That's, but that's, that's just a matter of immediacy. The second stage is to build a party outside of the, the Democratic Party, a Democratic Socialist Party, that really offers people alternatives and provides answers that matter. The first instance is you have to, you have to stop Trump. You cannot allow this guy to be elected the second, the second term because it seems to me that the planet will be in such peril uh, that we may not survive it. So I, I think in, in terms of a political expediency, the, he has to be stopped under all conditions, under all conditions. And the second issue has to be that you can't simply argue that the only possibility for reform is with the Democratic Party. They're not the cutting edge of resistance. The cutting edge of resistance will be in a social movement joined with workers and unions that create a new party that really speaks to people's needs and not just simply codes them and hides them while at the same time embracing the, the, uh, the values of Goldman Sachs. Henry, I love you, brother. <laughs> okay, true. I'm glad to be on. It's always great to hear your voice, sir. It really, I really appreciate it always. I, it's got to be far shorter than a year from now that we have you back on the show. I'm really looking forward to talking to you again. Thank you so much for everything that you've ever done for This Is Hell. I truly appreciate it, Henry. Uh, thank you, Chuck, and thanks for everything that you do, and thanks for having a program like this, because let me tell you, we need a million programs like this. <laughs> thanks. Don't tell people. I'll be in com- they'll have competition for me, then. And you should be in control of all of them. <laughs> thank you. That's the part I like. All right, take care, Henry. Bye, Chuck. Another end of the world is possible. This is hell. Prepare yourself to think about the campaign to overthrow apartheid, the revolutionary African National Congress, Nelson Mandela, African-American support or not of the campaign to end apartheid, the Cold War, white supremacy. Prepare yourself to consider everything you know about ending minority rule in South Africa 
is wrong. Okay, maybe not the part about it being a horrible system of white oppression, but other than that, forget it. We'll be completely reintroduced to the fight against apartheid in a few minutes when we have the return of historian Gerald Horn, author of White Supremacy Confronted, U.S. Imperialism and Anti-Communism versus the Liberation of Southern Africa from Rhodes to Mandela. Alex, what have you been up to on social media this week? Uh, on Facebook, I shared a piece that I thought was really great called Open the Borders, Welcoming Climate Refugees from War Magazine that I think people should check out. Also, uh, past guests Jeff Mann and Joel Wainwright had a really great piece for Descent called Political Scenarios for Climate Disaster. We had them on to talk about their book Climate Leviathan, which I think is maybe still one of the best pieces we've written or we've uh, talked about on the show uh, with regards to the politics of climate change and the future. Also, a terrible sentence from the guardian uh the sentence uh, that i found uh that i just posted over and over and over again is carbon emissions from the global energy industry last year rose at the fastest rate in almost a decade after extreme weather and surprise swings in global temperatures stoked extra demand for fossil fuels yes surprise swings in global temperatures hmm kind of surprising isn't it uh also ross barkin had a really great piece for baffler called exterminating angels the american myth of the progressive prosecutor and i think actually a couple months ago i shared a piece about how there shouldn't be judges either so damn maybe we should uh empty those courts uh finally on instagram i shared a picture of the once feral cat mel uh who joins us at office hours and all other hours uh yelling at chuck for food at the bar the other night uh, and do you want to opt in? He's not feral anymore if he's always in the damn bar or in your office. Uh, yeah, but he still sleeps outside. He still eats rats. He's, yeah, I know what you're saying. A lot of people are saying that he's not feral. He doesn't have a collar. He's got a chip in his ear. That chip in his ear kind of makes him not feral. He actually came back. That kind of makes him not feral. The other two left. So, yeah, don't really know about Mel. Uh, come right to now. office hours and uh, meet Mel. He's awesome. He really is awesome. The, the amount of time that he spends yelling at me is just absolutely spectacular. It's time for listener feedback that has been sent to us at Chuck at ThisIsHell.com. Today's first email is weird because I have no idea how a listener found out something about me. Alex, maybe you can help me figure this out, how a listener discovered something that I didn't tell anybody. Paul writes, I was excited to hear that you'll be a guest at Michael Brooks' upcoming live show here in Chicago. Got me wondering if you've ever done any live This Is Hell shows in the past or would consider doing any in the future. I know you're not one to jump on the latest podcasting trends and I'd pay my 401k, which is a total of $35, to see you, Alex, and maybe even Jeff perform in person keep up the great work do you have any idea how anybody would find out that i'm going to be on the michael brooks show yeah they tweeted about it they did yeah yeah. yeah. Hmm. Uh, also uh, just so everyone knows every this is hell is a live show we are the only <laughs> we are the only and i listen to tons of podcasts this is hell is the only <laughs> podcast uh where the live show is just as good as the regular show because they're the same thing we do live shows every week and soon you'll be able to see those live shows li- live via video when we get the studio closer to being finished but as far as doing them in front of a live audience Yeah, my vampire vision doesn't work that way. Stage lights are way too much for me, literally blinding me. So, no, you will not have the great pleasure of watching me do radio live in person. And I've done one of these kinds of live podcasts with another show from Ohio. What was the name of that show? Street Fight. Oh, yeah, Street Fight. Street Fight. Uh, I got 40 bucks for that. 
I also got the stink eye from a hipster bartender, so I hope Michael pays better and he doesn't have snobby mixologists in his entourage. Thanks to listener T, by the way, listener Daniel T, who sent a long list of names of suggested guests with links. I'm not going to just read you the list, but thank you, Daniel T, for that list. Arthur also had a guest suggestion, and it's a woman, which is great because we've been getting too many old white dudes suggested as guests during Listener Appreciation Month. Arthur says, hey, Chuck, I know we're already into July and the listener-suggested shows have begun, but I have another suggestion for you to consider for the future. Amy Webb, about the role of artificial intelligence and what it's playing and will play in our society and how it is completely in control uh, by nine multinational corporations. One of her main points in the book is that the billions of people that AI will affect have nearly no say in how new tech is integrated into our lives or regulated, which is the case today and always has been, I think. And not even governments have much control over these issues either. Yet another voice highlighting how the rich of the world are putting profits before people. Best Arthur. Arthur then offers a link to Amy's book. The book is entitled, again, her name is Amy Webb, The Big Nine, How the Tech Titans and Their Thinking Machines Could Warp Humanity, which was actually already on our watch list, Arthur, so maybe we'll still have time to get Amy on the show this month. Boki also has a guest suggestion. Boki says, hope you're doing well. It's been a while since I recommended a guest, and I can recommend one now that is versed in my favorite region of ex-Yugoslavia, being that I am from there, the philosopher Sreko Orvat. Check out the interview with Sreko Orvat on The Intercept. Maybe you can delve more into the origins of the Balkan Wars, his insight into the unique Yugoslav experience and success against fascism is insightful and very relatable to today's right-wing shift in Europe. Boki then sends us a link to an interview Sreko Horvat did with a past guest on our show, Jeremy Scahill. The interview comes with this description, philosopher Sreko Horvat discusses the historical lessons we can learn from the guerrilla struggle against fascism waged by the partisans in Yugoslavia during World War II. Horvat also talks about the recent surge in extreme right-wing political forces in Europe and what that trend in Julian Assange's case mean for the future of democracy. Thanks, Boki. And people often ask me, why we have such a wide variety of guests and topics on This Is Hell, and it's because of you, dear listener. You keep coming up with topics and guests we would never have found otherwise. So thanks to all of you, and thanks to Boki for putting back on our radar the Balkans and how we should be doing a little bit more reporting and maybe discussion of them in depth here on This Is Hell. We might get back into listener feedback later on. This week's question from hell is, what has Baron Trump been up to this whole time? What has Baron Trump been up to this whole time? All replies read on air. Following our next guest, this week's winner gets one of the new pieces of merchandise that we will have available for listeners at the annual Listener Appreciation Party and Art Show on Saturday, July 27th at Carrie's Lounge, 22. 51 West Devon, and that's the new This Is Hell trucker cap. Again, the question from hell is, what has Baron Trump been up to this whole time? Leave your response now at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. Listen following our next guest to find out if you've won. Coming up on this week's This Is Hell, let me put this over here. 
following conversations that we've already had on climate change and authoritarianism, the hits keep coming with the fight against apartheid and how the Cold War divided African Americans from Africans in the fight against overthrowing white supremacy on the Cape. And if climate change, authoritarianism, and apartheid ain't enough, we go back to the battle for Lincoln Park and how the fight over one neighborhood's future created a present-day Chicago that has rampant racial and economic segregation. During the moment of truth, Jeff Dorchin wonders why the right thinks anyone cares about their feelings, that the Dems are too far left. We'll also have what we've been doing on our weekly Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell. Question from hell, like I was saying. We'll keep reminding you about our anniversary party and uh, we want to thank some listeners for supporting This Is Hell and others for sharing the show online. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host Chuck Mertz producing this week's This Is Hell is Alex Jerry, your eyewitness to grief. This is hell. Disavow yourself of everything you know about the fight against apartheid and white supremacy in South Africa, other than the system of minority control was a heinous crime against humanity. And prepare your mind to be blown because returning to this is hell is historian Gerald Horn, author of White Supremacy Confronted, U.S. Imperialism and Anti-Communism versus the Liberation of Southern Africa from Rhodes to Mandela. Welcome back to This is Hell, Gerald. Thank you for inviting me. As the entire month of July is Listener Appreciation Month here on This is Hell, culminating in our Listener Appreciation Party and Art Show on Saturday, July 27th, we want to thank Calvin for suggesting Gerald Horn be back on our show. Calvin told us he recently saw that Gerald has two new books out, Jazz and Justice, Racism and the Political Economy of the Music and White Supremacy Confronted. Calvin says last year's This Is Hell interview with Gerald was one of my favorite of 2018, and it looks like either of these books could be great for an interview. Uh, Thanks, Calvin. And with apologies to Gerald and to all the jazz fans who are listening, we'll be discussing white supremacy confronted with Gerald today. However, I do want to get your jazz book for my nephew who is going to college beginning in the fall at University of Michigan to study jazz percussion. So I'll still want to get that book from you. And I just want to mention one other thing. Uh, Gerald, you may remember, was on our show last year to talk about his book, The Apocalypse of Settler Colonialism, which was chosen as one of the best books to be featured here on This Is Hell. So it's a real pleasure to have Gerald back on. And we really want to thank Calvin for suggesting we have him return. You write that it it is difficult to understand the decolonization of Southern Africa if one ignores contemporaneous events in North America and indeed the global correlation of forces more generally. Could the decolonization of South Africa have happened without the events that took place in North America? Because that ex- suggests previous events in North America may have been playing a role in South Africa's colonization as well. So how much was colonialism as well as decolonialism in South Africa a North American project? Well, keep in mind that with the beginning of settler colonialism in the Cape, the southern tip of Africa, in 1652, that there was a close link between the origins of settler colonialism here in North America. In fact, North American slave traders who were going around the Cape to Mozambique, then a Portuguese colony, to ensnare and enslave Africans and bring them back to toil in North America, oftentimes stopped and were assisted by their comrades in the city that is now known as Cape Town. Keep in mind as well that if we fast forward to the beginning of the 19th century, when Britain 
oust the Dutch from control of the southern tip of Africa. It's the Haitian Revolution, 1791 to 1804, that ignites the general crisis of the entire slave system that could only be resolved in it with its collapse. That is to say that in southern Africa, a la North America, there was slavery. In southern Africa, the enslaved were not only Africans right there sharing the land with the Dutch or Afrikaners, as they called themselves, but also the Afrikaners enslaved Mozambicans and also went as far afield as what is now Indonesia, because Indonesia, as you know, was also a Dutch colony. But with the Haitian Revolution, you found that Britain felt that the better part of wisdom was to move expeditiously to uh, oppose uh, the slave trade, then abolish slavery in its rich colonies, Jamaica and Barbados, and then put pressure on the Afrikaners to do the same, who then began to try to escape British jurisdiction by moving uh, further east and further north uh, from Cape Town. And that leads ultimately to the end of the 19th century with the so-called Anglo-Boer War, a settler's revolt, in Southern Africa, not unlike the settlers' revolt in North America in 1776 that eventuated in the formation of the United States of America. Interestingly enough, in terms of the Anglo-Boer War, you had Euro-Americans, white Americans, fighting on both sides of the equation. Now, to go further into the 20th century, it's interesting to note that the system of apartheid, this hateful, spiteful system of neo-slavery and Jim Crow on steroids, which was not formally inaugurated until 1948, the blueprint for apartheid was drawn up in New York City by the Carnegie Corporation of New York, which subsequently has apologized, which is probably too little too late. But part of their purpose and intention was to build a wall between poor Afrikaners and poor Africans to prevent a kind of class unity between and amongst them that could challenge the ruling elite. And so with apartheid, you see the organization of state-controlled corporations and a kind of affirmative action for poor Afrikaners to uplift them in the economy and to give them a so-called stake in the system so that they would distance themselves from their poor uh, African uh, counterparts. Now, you mentioned in your preparatory remarks the connections between African-Americans and Africans in South Africa. I think it's fair to say that up until the Red Scare, up until the Cold War, that is to say up until the post-1945 period, the relationship was rather close. But post-1945 and the onset of the Red Scare and the Cold War, you saw that the NAACP, the leading organization amongst black Americans, found it necessary to embark on the road of anti-communism and to purge its ranks of those real and imagined communists, including their founder, W.E.B. Du Bois, by the way, would help to found this organization, the NAACP, in 1909, whereas the African National Congress, which had come into existence in 1912, a three scant years after the formation of the NAACP, decided to take a different route. It tightened its relationship with the South African Communist Party, and in fact, uh, I'm not the first historian to point out that Nelson Mandela, inaugurated as the first democratically elected president in South Africa in 1994, was probably a member of the South African Communist Party uh, for a good deal of his adult life. And I should also say that it's interesting to look at the different ways in which people in the Jewish community were treated in North America and in Southern Africa. 
And North America, as you know, for reasons that I can go into if you're interested, there was a smoother path for those of Jewish descent, despite anti-Semitism, despite the lynching of Leo Frank in circa 1915, a, a Jewish-American man in Georgia lynched on rather spurious reasons. Whereas the Afrikaner, despite the title of my book, White Supremacy, in some ways, the Afrikaners were Afrikaner nationalists first and white second. That is to say, they sought to block the migration of other Europeans who are not of Dutch descent to the southern tip of Africa, even though they were outnumbered 10 to 1 by Africans. And more particularly, they particularly tried to block the migration of those who were Jewish who were fleeing pogroms in Central and Eastern Europe uh, in the first few decades of the 20th century, and of course that accelerated in the 1930s with the rise of Hitler. And what this serves to do is to drive many Jewish people in South Africa into the arms of the African National Congress and their ally, the South African Communist Party. In fact, a close comrade of Nelson Mandela was the Lithuanian Jewish man, a man of Lithuanian Jewish descent, I should say, Joe Slobo, who was the head of the South African Communist Party, and also for a while the leader of the armed wing of the African National Congress, this close relationship between the ANC and the South African Communist Party obviously complicated the ability of the ANC and Mandela to win support here in North America. And that does not begin to happen, in fact, until the collapse of the Berlin Wall, November 1989. And the last apartheid leader, F.W. de Klerk, chooses that moment to negotiate with Mandela and the African National Congress because the then socialist camp of Eastern and of Eastern Europe was a major bulwark of support for the ANC. As, as noted, the United States was hotly opposed to the ANC, seeing it as a kind of communist front, to use that term of Europe. And so Mandela is freed in February 1990, uh, weeks after the collapse of the Berlin Wall. His organization, the ANC, is unbanned, as is the uh, South African Communist Party, uh, thereby is takes place uh, lengthy uh, four years of negotiations culminating these elections in 1994. Now, the book also deals with the larger uh, regional context, the liberation struggle uh, in Angola, a once a site for the ensnaring of Africans to be enslaved in North America. In fact, the leading prison in, in Louisiana to this very day is coincidentally enough named Angolan State Prison. Uh, you would find, uh, if you were able to investigate, that a goodly number of the black people you pass on the streets of Chicago or of Angolan descent, whether they know it or not. And the turning point in that particular struggle was the intervention in 1975 of Cuban troops who defeated the apartheid military on the battlefield, raising the specter that the Cuban troops would not stop there but would march eastward into what was then called Rhodesia, now Zimbabwe, and forcibly oust the white minority regime there, and perhaps go on to Pretoria and forcibly oust the white minority regime there. Uh, this helps to induce a sense of compromise and realism uh, in the races, forcing even the United States to bend to reality. U.S. President Ronald Wilson Reagan is forced to uh, execute the Comprehensive Anti-Apartheid Act of 1985, despite the fact that he had sought to veto this act, this was due, this is, that is to say, this uh, comprehensive sanctions against South Africa and apartheid 
to this massive solidarity movement that particularly gripped campuses, not only campuses from the Atlantic to the Pacific, but also should also say campuses right there in your backyard, in Evanston, at Northwestern in particular. But also, it was a product, that is to say, this anti-apartheid movement of unions, particularly the West Coast longshoremen who com- controlled the docks from Seattle to San Diego, refused to unload South African merchandise, and this helped to compromise the business relationship between the United States and South Africa, which was quite uh, significant. Uh, most A goodly number of the Fortune 500 corporations, including GM, 3M, uh, Ford, the rubber giants of Akron, they were all uh, based in South Africa as well, taking advantage of the cheap labor there, which was obviously giving U.S. corporations an incentive and an inducement to shut down their plants here and move to the neo-slavery sites of South Africa. So it was understandable why unions would be opposed to South Africa. All of this pressure then leads, finally, to the forced, compelled retreat of apartheid and colonialism in Southern Africa by 1994. So uh, how much was the anti-apartheid movement, either here in the United States or the anti-apartheid movement in Africa, to what degree did the U.S. view it as a national security threat because of its connections to, its links to the Communist parties in China, in Cuba, and the Soviet Union? Well, I think you hit the nail right on the head. That is to say that the uh, opposition forces in South Africa and in Southern Africa more generally were faced with the point that the regime the minority regime in Pretoria, the minority regime in Salisbury, uh, now Harare, Zimbabwe, were quite close uh, to Washington and the North Atlantic Treaty Organization and the North Atlantic community more generally. They were not only close politically and diplomatically and militarily, but also in terms of kith and kin, bloodlines. And I wrote a book on Zimbabwe some years ago, and I pointed out that uh, Lyndon Baines Johnson, the U.S. president, from 1963 to 1968-69, was not the only U.S. leader who had kith and kin in what is now Zimbabwe. Uh, That is to say that Zimbabwe uh, was a British colony, and just like the United States of America was founded initially, originally as a British colony, because of these close relationships between the minority regimes of Southern Africa and the North Atlantic community, this this forced their opponents to turn east, if you like. That is to say, they were trained militarily in what was then East Germany and also in the Soviet Union. If they were wounded uh, on the battlefield, they oftentimes were airlifted to hospitals and sanatoriums in Soviet Union, particularly Sochi, where you might have noticed the Vladimir Putin spends a lot of time. I've already mentioned the fact that with regard to military assistance, the turning point was the introduction of Cuban troops uh, in 1975 into southwestern Africa. Uh, That helped to induce what then U.S. Secretary of State Henry Kissinger called a trauma. That is to say, the U.S. authorities were traumatized by the gumption and the audacity of the Cuban troops under the guidance and leadership of then uh, Cuban President Fidel Castro Ruz to intervene uh, militarily, uh, this causes the United States to redouble its efforts 
to destabilize the entire socialist camp. And of course, they received that opportunity in 1978-1979 when in Afghanistan, still a bleeding sore, still a site for U.S. military conflict, uh, the U.S. authorities decide to weaken what they consider to be a pro-Soviet regime in Kabul, Afghanistan, and thereby aligned with forces who were congruent with the man now reviled, I'm speaking of the late Osama bin Laden. And this conflict is also taking place in the context of the so-called uh, Sino-Soviet split. Now, on the one hand, uh, China, uh, under the leadership of the Chinese Communist Party, uh, did train certain ANC cadre militarily. Certainly, uh, China was close to the eventual victors in Zimbabwe, speaking of the ruling party there, ZANU-PF. But at the same time, uh, China, for various reasons that need not detain us here, uh, was quite hostile to Moscow. And that led China in 1975-1976 to align, believe it or not, with Washington and apartheid South Africa against the intervention of Cuban troops backed by the Soviet Union. Now, this is in the context, as you know, of this entente worked out by U.S. President Richard M. Nixon with Mao Zedong circa 1972. This leads to a massive payoff uh, to China in terms of foreign direct investment that's created this juggernaut. And just a few days ago in the Financial Times of London, there was an editorial by a former Harvard professor which said that that deal has led to the creation of a so-called Frankenstein monster in the form of this uh, juggernaut that is the People's Republic of China. Uh, and of course, we're now embarked, it seems, on a new Cold War with China, although it's fair to say that the seeds of that new Cold War, believe it or not, uh, are often to be found in southwestern Africa and Angola. There were so many things in that question that I want to follow up on. Uh, first, real quick, um, was supporting apartheid or supporting communism a false choice, and were activists forced into that false choice? What what explains their inability to get around that false choice? Yeah, I think it was a false, 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 false choice, and the ANC and the Liberation Forces said explicitly it was a false choice. That is to say, the choice was really between are you going to support racism and colonialism and neo-slavery, or are you going to oppose racism, neo-colonialism? and neo-slavery. And fortunately, on this side of the Atlantic, uh, millions of students and union members decided that whatever the consequences, they were going to oppose apartheid and colonialism in Southern Africa. Now, I do think that there was a kind of authentic, if you like, anti-communism in the United States of America. By authentic, not necessarily meaning that it was a justifiable ideology but meaning that people sincerely believed in that ideology. And therefore, when they noticed that the ANC was close to the South African Communist Party, when they noticed that the liberation forces in Angola were close to the Cuban Communist Party, when they noticed that the liberation forces in Mozambique were close to Eastern European communists, uh, they blanched and railed against this prospect. But that led them, I'm afraid to say, into a kind of devil's bargain, into the arms of the most noxious elements of the 20th century, speaking of the proponents of racism and neo-slavery in Southern Africa. 
You write that lubricating the path for the deep penetration of U.S. capital into the South African region was the mass ignorance of North Americans when it came to Southern Africa. Could people in the U.S. fairly claim that they simply didn't know about apartheid or even what it was, uh, what it was, let alone its effect on people's lives? Prior to the anti-apartheid movement, uh, was there a U.S. media blackout on the deprivations of South Africa? And can Americans say, hey, we just simply didn't know? Sure. I mean, there, there is a sort of an enforced ignorance, even today, uh, with the Internet and the ability to ascertain what's going on on any corner of the planet in a millisecond. Uh, you can still find people who say that they don't know what's going on in Afghanistan. They don't know about a prospect of a U.S. war with Iran. Uh, they don't know about the U.S. Co- covert actions in Syria. And likewise, uh, before the advent of the Internet, I think it's fair to say that there were people because perhaps of their own uh, proclivities, who did not know about uh, what was going on in Southern Africa. But one would think, say like in Chicago, you have all these black people walking around the streets. You think that that might pique curiosity as to how they arrived in North North America, uh, for example. And given the rampant discrimination that they faced in Chicago and across these United States of America, you would think that that would pique their curiosity about what is happening to black people in Southern Africa. And for millions, as noted, uh, their curiosity was piqued. For millions, as noted, that helped to activate them into energized protesters. But last, I'm afraid to say that there were millions more uh, who did not notice what was going on to their detriment. A lot of people here in the States now, in retrospect, I think everywhere in the world would say that they opposed apartheid, that it is a very simple decision to make. You write how there were those who were supporting apartheid back in the States because they were afraid to stop supporting apartheid because they were afraid it would offend white political sensibilities, considering the concern over offending white political sensibilities and the concerns for being anti-communist. How difficult of a decision was it for people in the U.S. to make to be opposed to apartheid? Well, you have to remember that there were very important political figures who were pro-apartheid. You know that Senator James Eastland of Mississippi, the late James Eastland of Mississippi, one of the old bulls of the U.S. Senate, has been in the news lately because... uh, potential Democratic nominee for president, former U.S. Vice President uh, Joseph Biden, uh, boasted about his relationship uh, with the segregationists, with the support of apartheid. Now, I'm sure that Joseph Biden felt that given the power wielded in Congress by James Eastland and Jesse Helms of North Carolina and Strom Thurmond of South Carolina and Richard Russell of Georgia and many other countless others who supported apartheid, that uh, it, would, uh, it would have been unwise to offend them unnecessarily in order to, in Biden's mind, make progress on other fronts. Now, I think if you understand Biden's relationship to these apartheid supporters in the Senate, you can understand why those who wielded less influence and had less job security, perhaps, than Joseph Biden, uh, did not want to offend the sensibilities of pro-apartheid elements in the wider Euro-American community. 
particularly as noted in your previous question, the mass ignorance about Africa generally, and Southern Africa in particular, that was part of the tapestry of North America and the United States of America. And that did not begin to break down until the anti-apartheid movement began to take to the streets and become much more disruptive and then began to capture headlines and captivate TV cameras and basically get in the face of these pro-apartheid elements. That helped to change the entire calculus and calculation. You mentioned how in 1963, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. appeared at the U.N. and Secretary of State Dean Rusk was worried. Rusk lobbied to ensure that the uh, cleric would, quote, confine his public testimony entirely to South Africa and not veer into criticism of the domestic United States racial situation. Rusk was blunt. I have serious reservations about the desirability of Dr. King's appearing before the U.N. in view of the danger that our domestic racial policies will be made the focus. There were all, there was also uh, U.S. opposition to the U.S. Uh, well, U, opposition to the U, to here in the U.S. to apartheid. Uh, there was concern that that was going to bring attention to U.S. racial iniquities. Did apartheid ever bring that focus? Because I haven't seen much improvement in conditions of black lives here in the states since South African apartheid ended in 1994. Did Rusk really have anything to worry about? Yes and no. I mean, I, I do think that as of that moment in 1963, recall this is before the Civil Rights Act of 1964, kind of Magna Carta in terms of the breaking down the walls of Jim Crow and segregation, including in Chicago, by the way, and the passage of the Voting Rights Act of 1965, which was similarly a kind of Magna Carta. The United States was deathly afraid that Dr. King and others so situated would link up with the African National Congress, which in turn was tied, as noted, to the Cuban Communist Party and the then Soviet Communist Party, and that this would compromise U.S. national security. As of 1963, Dean Russ's fear seemed to be real and authentic. Now, of course, with 2020 hindsight, looking back from 2019 and looking back at the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991, the crumbling of the Berlin Wall in 1989, the fact that as we speak, uh, for many, 25 years after democratic elections in South Africa, even though there has been uh, progress in terms of providing water to those who did not have it before, providing education to those who did not have it before. There is a kind of disappointment by many uh, in the uh, progress uh, against apartheid and its legacy in South Africa. And likewise, as your question suggested, uh, there is disappointment uh, and uh, alienation, if you like, with regard to Oh, what has happened, what has befallen the black American community as of 2019. However, uh, looking in, in 1963, Dean Russ did not have a crystal ball. And from his point of view, sitting where he sat in Foggy Bottom at the State Department in Washington, D.C., this seemed to be a real and authentic fear that he had that Dr. King would link up with these global forces from his point of view to the detriment of U.S. national security. 
but that it didn't seem to have happened. That didn't seem to really bring attention to racial inequities here in the United States. Why didn't the campaign, even in the 80s, why didn't that campaign, and I I went to a couple of anti-apartheid rallies. They were focused on what was happening in South Africa. The vast majority of the people at these uh, college rallies were white people from privileged backgrounds. Why is it that that group of people never brought attention to the racial inequities here in the United States? Why did they simply focus on nothing? It seemed, at least to me, and I could be wrong, but it seemed to me they only focused on South Africa. Well, I think that as a person who happens to be melanin-rich, happens to be a person of African descent, (laughs) this book uh, details my own association with the anti-apartheid movement in the 70s and the 80s. Uh, It included many black people, including on some of these campuses that you don't necessarily associate with black people, including Princeton and Columbia, University of California at Berkeley, uh, for example. Uh, We always tried to draw a connection between suffering in North America and suffering in Southern Africa. Now, I don't think that those who were courageous enough to march and to protest should be castigated because our message was not necessarily accepted with equanimity by those who were apathetic or unconcerned or bored. I think that those who should be castigated or those who were apathetic, unconcerned, and bored with the prospect of struggling against apartheid and struggling against uh, Jim Crow and its legacy. Now, I mean, what you're, you're opening a, a much wider discourse than, unfortunately, I don't think we have time to get into, but I think if we did, we'd have to look at how in the United States, even amongst radical sectors, the very term settler colonialism, which is part of the last book we discussed between yourself and myself on these airwaves, the very term settler colonialism is not part of the common, ordinary, radical political discourse, even though where you're sitting a few hundred years ago was land controlled by indigenous people. And I think that that speaks once again to the apathy, the lack of concern, and quite frankly, the retrograde politics, uh, even by those who consider themselves to be progressive, and that helped to compromise the anti-apartheid movement, just like it helped to compromise the movement against Jim Crow and his legacy in the United States of America. You write that we do not need to go as far back as the 17th century when the process that led to European settlement in North America was linked to a similar process at the southern tip of Africa to identify connections between these regions. In 1953, Hayden Raynor of the U.S. State Department was instructed that the surplus population of Europe should now be settled in Africa and not the U.S. since the ruling class uh, centered in Pretoria was seen to need bolstering. Quote, the early American settlers were able to suppress the Indians, Raynor was told, so why cannot the British, with that assistance of the other Europeans, do likewise in Africa? To what extent, then, was South Africa a site of U.S. white supremacy being expressed as a foreign policy? And what is the state today of white supremacy's impact on U.S. foreign policy? Well, certainly... It's important to point out, as I point out in the introduction of this book, that in the 1920s, the U.S. diplomat uh, sternly instructed his comrades in Pretoria that they had three, three choices. They could exterminate the indigenous population, as happened in North America 
in, in, in terms that I described a few moments ago, uh, they could migrate, uh, they could leave. <laughs> that is to say, which they were not willing to do, certainly not in the 1920s, or they could assimilate. They could engage in what was called miscegenation, that is to say, intermarry uh, with the majority population, which their racism prevented them from doing. And so, in some ways, the Africana elite was stuck because, as noted, they tried to block European migration. For example, Jewish people uh, fleeing the pogroms in the 1920s and 1930s and the early 1940s in Central and Eastern Europe. And with that decision, they basically determined that they were going to be outnumbered, and which meant that they would ha have a difficult road to hoe in terms of struggling against Africans armed by the Soviet Union. Now, with regard to today, it's interesting to note that in the recent elections that took place a few weeks ago in South Africa, that the ANC retained its majority, albeit a reduced majority. But there were two other intriguing electoral factors. One was the rise in support of Freedom Front, which is a kind of neo-apartheid policy, which, by the way, has received shout-outs from the 45th U.S. president, uh, who apparently resonates with the claim, the false claim, I should add, that there's a kind of white genocide taking place uh, in, in South Africa, which compelled the conservative uh, Australian government to retreat from his usual anti-migration uh, uh, and anti-immigration psychosis to say that it, it would welcome with open arms those to find us white who are fleeing South Africa. And on the other hand, you had a uptick in support of the so-called economic freedom fighters who, unlike the ANC, uh, takes the more striking point of view, not only with regard to reclaiming the land uh, taken by the invaders beginning in 1652, but also, I think it's fair to say that the EFF, the Economic Freedom Fighters, uh, have a point of view that could easily be characterized as, quote, anti-white, unquote. And this is creating a very explosive combination. And I dare say that if there is not uh, ex vicious activity in terms of redistributing the wealth in South Africa, and I would say Southern Africa more generally, that that situation is a tinderbox waiting to explode. And of course, uh, you could make a similar claim if you so chose with regard to North America. You mentioned the dilemma of the dominant Afrikaners. They were not as successful as their counterparts in North America in constructing a synthetic whiteness that could have had a better chance of extending white supremacy than the existent Afrikaner nationalism. What is it about what you call North America's synthetic whiteness that makes white supremacy here even stronger than in South Africa? Well, that's a very good question. And I, I think you know, I just completed a manuscript on the 1500s, and one of the reasons why we're sitting here speaking English as opposed to Spanish, and of course, sponsoring Columbus, they had first movers advantage, is in, in terms of settling or invading North America. And England at that time was a minor power on the fringes of Europe, was that the Spanish regime tried to impose a religious test on settlers. You could become an African conquistador if you pledged to be a Catholic, a good Catholic. And, of course, a lot of the early enslavement in Spanish settlements was of the indigenous population. This is all taking place in the context of this raging war between Catholics and Protestants, with London being Protestant and Madrid being Catholic. 
the scrappy underdog that was London basically outflanked the Spanish by moving away from religious tests. After all, in 1492, the Spanish not only sponsored Columbus, they expelled the Jewish community. London moved towards a kind of pan-Europeanism, which we would now call whiteness, extending uh, benefits to those who could be defined as white. Ultimately, as you know, Persians and Arabs could be defined as white in North America. And that proved to be the winning ticket in terms of why we're sitting here in this self-proclaimed richest country on earth, uh, speaking a language developed in Northwest Europe. And so that helps to explain why whiteness and white supremacy has been more potent in uh, North America than in South Africa. And then, of course, there's the point that as a superpower, uh, that is to say, as a leader of the so-called North Atlantic community, the United States of America had to make more compromises in order to confront and combat the onslaught, as they saw it, from the then-socialist camp, thereby forcing an agonized retreat away from Jim Crow in 1954 with Brown versus Board of Education. Uh, South Africa did not have as many global obligations, and therefore they thought that they could stick it out just with Africana nationalism backed up by Washington and the North Atlantic community. But alas, they made a miscalculation. So uh, how did North America become convinced, put the ANC's communist ties aside, to oppose apartheid, what logic eventually beat out the fear of communism, which seems so pervasive? I think it was the logic of protest. It was, as I talk about in the book, the Free South Africa movement, which is ignited during the height of the conservative regime of Ronald Wilson Reagan in the fall of 1984, a mass protest at the South African embassy in Washington, South African consulate attracting celebrities. It became quite fashionable, if you look at my book or if you were around at that time, to be arrested and detained. And the anti-apartheid sentiment spreads like wildfire, at least the petition campaigns uh, from the Atlantic to the Pacific. It leads to the introduction of sanctions legislation, uh, which we are, were able to force a significant percentage of Republicans to back over the veto of Ronald Wilson Reagan. That is to say that... Uh, it's not so much that the United States uh, willingly saw the light with regard to apartheid. It's more that we forced them to retreat from dug-in positions because they felt that they had no alternative but to retreat. And I think that that's a lesson for our struggles today in July 2019. And you point out the support that the ANC, then a communist group, uh, was getting from the Soviet Union, was getting from Cuba, and even uh, some support from China. With the collapse of the wall, with the end of the Soviet Union, how did that affect the fight globally against white supremacy? What leverage was lost by those fighting white supremacy around the world when the wall fell? Well, first of all, the ANC... Had a church with many pews. Uh, one of the pews was occupied by the South African Communist Party, but it, it really wasn't a, a communist organization, although it did have communist leadership and communist participation. And I think it's fair to say that with the collapse of the socialist camp, uh, this skewed the internal workings of the ANC 
towards those who did not have a pro-working class bias. Uh, that is to say, the present leader of the uh, ANC and the present president of South Africa, one of Africa's richest men, Cyril Ramaphosa. Now, Cyril started off as a mine workers union leader, but he still is a multi-millionaire, some say a billionaire. And South Africa, in particular, a country of only 55 million, has found it difficult to engage in a policy of redistribution of the wealth when after the collapse of the Soviet Union and the socialist camp, there's hardly any backing globally for redistribution of the wealth, uh, not least in Southern Africa. But with this uh, ongoing Cold War with China, and as I said, this uh, agonizing reappraisal of the policy that led to the rise of China, there might be an opening created for a heightened struggle against white supremacy in particular, because you might have noted that Karan Skinner of the U.S. State Department, the director of policy planning, uh, said, and I would say falsely, that China presents a unique challenge uh, because it's so large and also because it's not, quote, Caucasian, unquote. I think that there is a looming conflict that is already unfolding between the People's Republic of China and the United States of America, and that has the possibility, an underlying possibility, of creating openings for the struggle against white supremacy, but right now it's too soon to tell. You write that when the socialist camp began to erode in 1989 because of the fall of the wall, apartheid rulers chose this moment adroitly to negotiate with the ANC that had been weakened globally precisely because of these developments, a decision which in turn set the stage for a compromise accords that to this day have hindered the ability of the post-apartheid regime to deliver radical transformation. Did the regime give up as little apartheid as problem? Are the problems, are the challenges that we are seeing in South Africa today due to a poorly negotiated deal that ended apartheid but really didn't? Well, I'm not so sure I would use the term poorly negotiated. I I think, as noted, the ANC was at a disadvantage because its support was collapsing as the support for the apartheid regime, speaking of Washington, D.C., was preening on the global stage as the sole remaining superpower. Uh, This created an imbalance in terms of the negotiations. And then I quote Trevor Manuel, who was the first finance minister of independent South Africa post-1994 under Mandela, who says that not enough attention has been paid to the fact that up to the spring of 1994, there had been a systematic looting uh, of the coffers in Pretoria, that the cupboard was bare once the ANC took the reins of power. And once again, this is nothing new. Recall that in the late 1950s, when Guinea Conakry, under the leadership of Seiko Toure, a West African leader of uh, some historic importance, he argued correctly that the French were so irked by the giving up the reins of power and giving up the reins of colonialism that they took light bulbs, they destroyed toilets, they wanted to make sure that this new regime would have a very difficult uphill climb, which, of course, they have had uh, since then. And so, likewise, you had a similar process taking place in South Africa, and then it's been uh, uh, further uh, colored by the fact that uh, it's been difficult to negotiate 
with the scale tipped towards Washington and its conservatism is embedded at present with the 45th U.S. president, who has noted, uh, has expressed uh, some sympathy for the Freedom Front, the ultra-rightist uh, neo-apartheid force in South Africa. So that's where we sit now, but I, I don't expect the status quo to be uh, inevitable or eternal, not least because it's not sustainable. One last question for you, Gerald. We've been speaking with historian Gerald Horn, author of White Supremacy Confronted, U.S. Imperialism and Anti-Communism versus the Liberation of Southern Africa from Rhodes to Mandela. As the entire month of July is Listener Appreciation Month here on This Is Hell, culminating in our Listener Appreciation Party and Art Show on Saturday, July 27th, we want to thank Calvin for suggesting Gerald Horn to be back on our show. Calvin will get a secret mystery prize for having his guest that he suggested actually get on air. Gerald is John Jay and Rebecca Moore's professor of African American history at the University of Houston. Gerald was on our show last uh, year to discuss his book, The Apocalypse of Settler Colonialism, and that book was selected as one of the best books to be featured here on This Is Hell in 2018. So go to our website, thisishell.com, and search on the name Horn, H-O-R-N-E, and you can find that interview. One last question for you, and as always, Gerald, our final guest for each and every one of our guests is the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to ask or answer, or our audience will hate your response. Uh, you explain how uh, there's a, uh, or, or you quote, sorry, scholar, activist, and analyst Leopoldo Lebohango Fecco lamenting the usurpation and distraction of a colonial liberation struggle, meaning South Africa's, into a black-white issue, presumably Mm. by the U.S., remains one of the greatest fissures in the South African liberation narrative. Mm. It is that removed African liberation, decolonization, and land restitution from the center of the debate. It translated the complexity of land occupation into race relations, the latter being a North American specialty, with the anti-apartheid movement more in keeping with the United States civil rights movement, a profound setback. How is the United States civil rights movement a profound setback for the anti-apartheid movement in South Africa? Well, I think studying that quote which actually I'd forgotten. I guess that's why I write things down, because sometimes I don't remember things. <laughs> I, I think studying that quote, I think, would be very educational and very revealing. That is to say that this was a national liberation movement in Southern Africa, particularly in South Africa, whereas in North America, this, because not least because of the purging of radical elements like Paul Robeson and W.E.B. Du Bois, the movement was channelized into a movement for civil rights and a movement for the eradication of Jim Crow, not necessarily a movement for class-based rights, such as making it easier to organize unions, uh, making it easier to get higher pay, And as the saying went at the time, and still holds, uh, people in the United States, black people won the right to sit at a restaurant that did not necessarily have the money to pay the bill. And similarly, there's been an ongoing attempt to betray Mandela, who, after all, was the leader of the armed wing of the African National Congress, as a kind of Martin Luther King, that is to say, a nonviolent crusader, uh, when in fact, he led an armed resistance and traveled before being jailed for 28 years to 
to seek military assistance in Ethiopia, Algeria, and elsewhere. And I think that quote that you just cited is a reflection of the fact that because of the weight that the United States wields internationally and also wields in South Africa, that there has been a kind of revisionist history to make the anti-apartheid movement the equivalent of the civil rights movement in the United States of America. And I would say to the detriment of both, certainly to the detriment of Southern Africa, as that quote reveals, but I would also say to the detriment of we here in North America, because the heroic painting of the civil rights movement, and certainly it accomplished quite a bit, detracts from its weaknesses and its deficiencies, not least the going along with the purging of radicals like Du Bois and Robeson, which then narrows the possibility of this, this movement gaining greater and more glorious victory. Gerald, I really appreciate you being back on our show. This has been a fascinating conversation. We've had two conversations now with you in nine months. I've enjoyed both thoroughly. I'm really looking forward to having you back on the show. Historian Gerald Horn, author of White Supremacy Confronted, U.S. Imperialism and Anti-Communism versus the Liberation of Southern Africa. And again, we want to thank listener Calvin for suggesting... uh, Gerald as a guest during Listener Appreciation Month here in July. Thank you again, Gerald, for being back on the show. Truly appreciate it and looking forward to having you back on the show in the future. Thank you for inviting me. All right. Take care. Live from the good old U.S. of A., where capitalism is all our pimp, this is hell. If you want to make certain capitalism doesn't become this is hell's pimp, support this is hell by going to thisishell.com and then click on support. When you do... We will send you a gift from our line of gifts that you can pick from at our site. Again, thisishell.com. Then click on support. We have the newly designed t-shirt, the newly designed coffee mug, the newly designed tote bag. And soon we'll have more as we get closer to the July 27th date of our fourth annual 20th anniversary and listener appreciation party and art show. Man, we got to fix the name of that thing. We want to thank the people who did go to thisishell.com and clicked on support this week. Thanks this week goes to the tithing-like religious commitment to This Is Hell by Pete B. And the very kind donations from Cherish. Thanks to everyone who supported This Is Hell this week and in the coming days, weeks, months, and years of the Trump administration. Your support will be needed more than ever if you want to be thanked on air. Support This Is Hell and get a This Is Hell coffee mug, t-shirt, or tote bag. Go to thisishell.com and then click on support. In the 1960s and 1970s, the now glitzy Chicago neighborhood of Lincoln Park, including the Old Town Triangle, went through a struggle over transforming their community, urban renewal, and gentrification. That fight literally turned into a battle with violence in the streets. It all ended up with the template for turning the entire north side of Chicago white, segregated both racially and economically as well. We'll find out how and why Chicago got this way when we hear from urban issue scholar Daniel K. Hertz, author of the Battle of Lincoln Park, Urban Renewal and Gentrification in Chicago. You can rate This Is Hell on Facebook, and plenty have so far. We currently have a 4.9 rating out of a possible 5 because somebody actually thinks 
that we are agents of Vladimir Putin. If we were agents of Vladimir Putin, would we need a Patreon page? Or are we so clever that that's a cover for the fact that we are actually on the payroll of Vladimir Putin? Or is Vladimir Putin actually subscribing on Patreon? You just don't know. But you, too, can go to Facebook.com slash The Cell Radio and give us five stars if you don't think that we are puppets of Vladimir Putin. Give us five stars so I don't have to. And if you do, and leave a comment. I'll read yours on air. Okay, let's read your answers to this week's question from hell, which is, what has Baron Trump been up to this whole time? What has Baron Trump been up to this whole time? All replies read on air right now. This week's winner gets one of the new pieces of This Is Hell merchandise that we will have available for listeners at the annual Listener Appreciation Party and Art Show on Saturday, July 27th at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon. And that prize, again, is the trucker's cap that will be available at the party. Leave your response right now to our question from hell. What has Baron Trump been up to this whole time? Leave your response now at facebook.com slash the cell radio. And you still have a chance at this week's prize. Alex, you have all the answers. Yeah. And there are so many responses this week that I'm going to have to leave out any ones that are just people saying, don't be mean to Baron Trump or people being mean to Baron Trump. <laughs> he's a little kid and he could turn around. Ah, uh, what is Baron Trump been up to this whole time. Uh, Prescient S says Baron's been padding his res er, been padding his resume, seeking a fencing scholarship. Uh. Scraps K says playing with his dolls. <coughs> Caleb Z says sitting at home practicing his bankruptcy paperwork and his I take the fifth face so he can grow up to be just like his dad. Fabio L counseling his mother. Bradley R. Wait a second, that's the best one so far. Fabio L counseling his mother. Bradley R says studying the blade. <laughs> Uh, Just M says, hiding his allowance to contribute to socialist causes. Nick E says, he's been living the dream, a sequestered carriage house on the back 40 of Mar-a-Lago, surfing Indonesia, running lines to prepare for an audition. John Milius wants him to play Tab Hunter in a biopic. He's an environmentalist who uses his drone to deftly save endangered turtle eggs. Hermione is tutoring him in the dark arts. He's a silent partner in a lot of Jaden Smith's social justice and ecology endeavors. He's a bisexual vegan who DJs at a danceteria NYC. And all the while, his twin brother languishes in the tower. This <laughs> <laughs> very good. Wow. Wow. Put that one aside. It's on Nick E. Uh, yeah. Warren L. says, rewatching the Omen movies and realizing his true destiny. Shane M. says, he's been tweeting out stuff on his dad's phone. Oh, boy, will he be in trouble if the Donald ever finds out. <laughs> Krimsky K. says, he goes to school. He answers terrible questions there, too. Thomas R. says, oh, he's just leaving the kid out of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, H. says, Fortnite. Ladio says, 3D printing friends? <laughs> Jessica B says, oh, damn. Anxiety attack? Rob H says, streaming Fortnite on Twitch. Astrid N says, secretly following Robert F. Kennedy Jr. and Dell Bigtree on social media. Wow. Uh, KJF says, nightly watching of Hereditary. Wow. Uh, John, geez, this is a common one. John T said, pretty much, pretty sure it's just been Fortnite. Yeah. Uh, Naomi, you remember, prepare to write this one down, uh, Chuck. Naomi G says, incubating his father's backup organ stash. <laughs> <laughs> what has Baron Trump been up to this whole time? Sean M says, practicing his Russian, so when he inherits America, he can speak with his bosses. Okay, Sean. Uh, <laughs> uh, L says, cringing. Charlie M <laughs> says, studying political science. Mark R says, avoiding Epstein. <laughs> Anthony W says, he's got the gamer's pallor. Uh, oh, that was mean. Sorry. Uh, Randall M says having his name and identity changed. Dan K says making Armenia great again. 
Curly B says, after that horrible accident attempting to learn the, to f- the floss, this is hell should lay off him. How many Trump activity doubles will have their last cigarettes because of you? <laughs> Lori M says, waiting, sitting back, watching things implode for the day he'll be the last Trump standing outside of a cell. Chandler H says, binge watching anime. Benjamin C says, <laughs> reading The Count of Monte Cristo. <laughs> Jacob J. Oh, that, that's gross, Jacob. I can't read that one. Uh, oh, Zach A. also said something gross. Uh, <laughs> they're not it's gr- gross things at all 13-year-old boys. Yeah, do, I yeah, yeah. Brown S. says, hanging out with the doc and going back to the future. Edison K. says, unbeknownst to his family, for the past three years, he has been the leader of a group of underground socialist radicals now poised for revolution. Derek K. says, eating mozzarella sticks and listening to Sarah McLaughlin. What <laughs> <laughs> uh, Dennis H. says, accidentally found himself in an immigrant detention center. <laughs> Uh, Jack B says nothing. He's the son of a rich a-hole who's currently the most powerful man in the world. He loves it. Uh, Aja K says he must be growing bone spurs. <laughs> Adam A says probably spends most of his time hoping the world chokes to death on a sack full of something I'm not going to get into anymore. <laughs> Jeez, you guys, I got to read these on the radio and I don't want to get in trouble. Uh, Borky B, uh, thank you back to a Dune reference. Thank you, Borky, for saying Mentat training, schooling in hand-to-hand combat, deep and deep immersion in the Bene Gesserit ways. <laughs> Bene Gesserit? Gesserit. Yeah, Gesserit, okay. Uh, I didn't know you were a Dune fan, Chuck. Uh, mm. Mark A.S. says when he's not attended to by daddy's underpaid servants in Manhattan, he goes to an exclusive Christian academy in Maryland. In his spare time, he can wander around the White House and sample the 200 years of wallpaper paste. That sounds kind of like spot on right there, by the way. Accurate. <laughs> Angela M. says planning his escape. Peter K. says, growth spurts, Googling stain removal made easy. Oh, jeez, you guys. And dreading the chip off the old block effect. Joshua W. says, jeweling with the two U's. Uh, Chris F. says, effectively distancing himself from his father. Gorilla G. says, slowly, painfully transitioning to human. Joanne C. says, wishing he had a puppy. Peter C. also planning his escape. Garrett L. says, getting swole, bruh. <laughs> Andrew T. says, attending Madame La Douche finishing school. That's, I guess, more mean to Madame La Douche than the parents all allow that one. Uh, Blaze, M's, or Blaze N. says, this was always the weakest part of the show. Just ditch it already. Oh, I didn't mean to read that one. <laughs> That's a good one. Eric T. says, exploring his kinks. Uh, Pete. Oh, nope. That's gross Pete. Uh, someone else said, don't talk. Uh, uh, Wally R says, averting eye contact and spending long afternoons with his invisible friends, pulling wings off butterflies in what remains of Michelle's garden. Oh. Uh, JK says, receiving tons of paternal love, care, and attention. <laughs> That's hilarious. And uh, there's one more. Hold on, let me pull up uh, Gorilla f- or uh, Eat Fart 69. says, Baron's been busy hiring his classmates to build Lego towers and then not paying them the milk and cookies owed. <laughs> My response to this week's question from hell, what has Baron Trump been up to this whole time? I guess I can be mean, right? I don't know. I guess he's busy being a snobby, snotty prick, I guess. I don't know. Anyone who allows their parents to dress them up in a suit and tie in what looks like boarding school shorts is probably a complete tool unless you're Angus Young in an ACDC. And being that kid's that age and of impressionability... I'd figure he's a jag just like his dad, but I'm betting that Donald doesn't spend any time with him, so maybe he's not so bad after all. Still, dude, dump the business shorts. That makes this week's winner 
I'm not going to ask Alex to read the whole thing back. I really liked Fabio L. saying counseling his mother. I really liked Doopy L. saying cringy. I liked Mark R. saying that he was avoiding Epstein. Those are all really great. But Nick E., your answer was hands down the very best of all of them. And if our listeners want to go read your response, because it is lengthy, all they have to go, all they have to do is go to fa- facebook.com slash this is hell radio and see all of this week's responses again nikki congratulations you have won one of the new pieces of this is hell merchandise that will be available for listeners at the annual listener appreciation party and art show on saturday july 27th at carrie's lounge 2251 west devon Thanks to everyone for coming out to our weekly meet and greet, which is more a think and drink. This is how office hours at Carrie's, 2251 West Devon. Drop by, drink, hang out, watch me drink every Wednesday evening from 6 p.m. to 9 p.m. Get some free This Is Hell advertising stickers and free show-related books. That is if you remember to ask me. Thanks this week goes out to everybody who dropped by, and I know I'm going to be forgetting some of you. Thanks this week goes to, well, Alex, Jonah, Theron, Leo, the entire This Is Hell crew. Thanks to all of you for dropping by. Thanks to Marta and another former This Is Hell producer here on This Is Hell, Drew. Thanks to Wally, Joel, Rachel, Pete, Michelle, Jordan, Johnny, the other Johnny. And like I said, I know I'm forgetting a few other people because I was laser focused on getting home by 9 o'clock last week as this was a brutal Brutal week for reading, writing, and researching for the show. Join us Wednesday evenings at Carrie's Lounge from 6 p.m. to 9 p.m. for This Is Hell Office Hours. Drop by, have a drink, get a free show-related book, and some This Is Hell advertising stickers. Check out our nearly completed studios. Get some This Is Hell merchandise. Meet other listeners of This Is Hell. All this Wednesday... Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon. And if you are somebody who is a listener to the show and would like to meet other listeners of the show, this is the best way to do it. Drop by, this is hell, office hours, Carrie's Lounge, every Wednesday evening, 6 p.m. to 9 p.m. Coming up on this week's This Is Hell, if climate change, authoritarianism, and apartheid haven't been enough hell for you already. We go back to the battle for Lincoln Park and how the fight over one neighborhood's future created a present-day Chicago that has rampant racial and economic segregation. During the moment of truth, Jeff Dorchin wonders why the right thinks anyone cares about their feelings that the Dems are too far left. We'll also have what we've been up to on our weekly podcast exclusively for subscribers to This Is Hell on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell. We'll keep reminding you about our upcoming fourth annual 20th anniversary and listener appreciation party and art show happening at Carrie's on Saturday, July 27th, all day and all night. We want to thank some listeners for sharing This Is Hell online. And we also want to thank those. Or we also want to tell you what's happening on upcoming episodes of This Is Hell I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, Chuck Mertz, producing this week's This Is Hell. Alex Jerry, staring into the abyss so you don't have to. This is hell. Fifty years ago, there was a fight over gentrification in Chicago that reverberates to this very day that has left an indelible stamp on the city, a stamp of racial and economic segregation. Here to explain urban issues scholar Daniel K. Hertz, 
author of The Battle of Lincoln Park, Urban Renewal and Gentrification in Chicago. Welcome to This Is Hell, Daniel. Hi, thank you so much for having me. As all of July is Listener Appreciation Month here on This Is Hell, and because of that, all our guests this month were suggested by listeners. Leo suggested Daniel as a guest, telling us via an email at chuckatthisishell.com. Here is the guy I was talking about when we met during office hours, Daniel K. Hertz. He works for the Chicago Center for Tax and Account and Budget Accountability and is a photographer of interesting buildings on Chicago's north side, and he wrote a book called The Battle of Lincoln Park. So that could be interesting, although I don't have any questions in mind at the moment. Don't worry, Leo. That's my job anyway. You can find out more about Daniel by going to danielkhertz.com. That's Daniel and then the word K-A-Y, hertz.com. All right, first of all, before we ask you anything, so photographer of interesting buildings on Chicago's north side, are you showing your work anywhere right now? <laughs> that's, a, that's a very generous description. Uh, I, th- I think by that he means that as I'm walking around, I see things I like. I take pictures and I put them on my Twitter feed. That's about the extent of my photography. I did win uh, honorable mention, I think, in a high school photo competition. Um, but since then, I have not uh, been involved in any formal way. So I assume that's on your CV then? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm pleased <laughs> with that. You can follow Daniel and see his photography at Daniel K. Hertz on Twitter. You define gentrifying as a growth in professional class residents, generally without social ties to the prior residents of the neighborhood and usually white, which may make me a gentrifier. I don't know. Maybe it makes you a gentrifier, although I don't really think I'm part of the professional class as I'm broke. Is gentrification a post-World War II phenomenon or even later? Because I remember it becoming a big deal in the late 80s, early 90s, and Uptown, and Lincoln Square, and North Center. Uh, Is it anything new? Because it seems to be like this kind of new thing over the last couple of decades that people have been concerned about. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things I really wanted to do with the book is make an argument that actually gentrification in sort of shockingly uh, recognizable ways has been a thing in Chicago going back at least to the 1920s. Um, where you see, um, you know, generally sort of, uh, you know, young adults from middle or upper middle class or even affluent families who themselves do not necessarily have a lot of money, but clearly are linked to people with money by a, you know, social network, by a family, um, who, you know, decide they want to live basically as, you know, close to downtown jobs and sort of the downtown wealthy social networks, which at the time was, you know, basically the Gold Coast. Um, But they don't want to live right in it, and they probably can't afford to live right in it. So they sort of live on these sort of neighborhoods that are marginal to those areas um, and, you know, set up these sort of, um, you know, countercultural, artistic, uh, you know, young person communities. Um, but in the process are sort of drawing the social networks and the money of the communities that they are originally from um, into those new sort of marginal working class uh, neighborhoods. And, and, you know, over time that turns into gentrification and then ends up being, you know, people end up moving there, end up increasing housing prices on the neighborhood. Demographics change. Um, so no, so I think, I think it's something that's been going on for, you know, going on 100 years. Um, you know, you could certainly look into previous, 
even further back and, and make arguments about gentrification. I don't do that, but I, I would entertain it. <laughs> um, but I think, I think we've, we've started to get a lot more attention to it in the last, you know, 20, 30 years, um, just because the scale of it has become a lot bigger. Um, you know, the number of neighborhoods, the number of people affected, uh, it's become a lot, a, a lot larger than it was before World War II or even immediately after World War II, even though it was also happening then. You write that short memories about the trend of increasing affluence on the north side seem to be almost as old as the belief that gen- er, er, as gentrification is. Between the 1930s and 1960s, Chicago media published articles every few years claiming to have discovered a rebirth in Lincoln Park, few of which acknowledged earlier versions of the same story. Many of these articles are remarkably similar to those published today about the communities currently undergoing similar changes like gentrification. So does each gentrification erase the gentrification that preceded it? What does that say about gentrification if the process can be repeated in the same place where it apparently failed in the past? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that that says is that gentrification is not sort of a binary thing. It's not like, oh, a neighborhood is not gentrified and then it flips over to being gentrified. I think, you know, it's a, it, it really is a, a spectrum. Um, and so you know, you can have sort of the first wave of, again, you know, the often young people who not necessarily make more money than the people, you know, in the neighborhood that they're moving into, but who are connected by family or by job or by whatever to, you know, a sort of more affluent world. Um, you know, that's sort of one one step of gentrification. And you get articles about like, oh, look at these sort of, you know, funky artist communities. Um, and then, you know, they get a little bit older or some sort of more older people move in and people who do have a little bit more money and you do see, you know, buildings getting fixed up, rents going up a little bit, you know, new kinds of businesses. And then there's articles about that. And then you move on a little bit more and you get people who are maybe, you know, more solid mid-career professionals who do make, you know, a fair amount of money and it's actually becoming a sort of pricey neighborhood. Um, And some of those older gentrifiers are being priced out as a result. And then there's articles about that. And then there's, you know, finally there's, you know, the, you know, if for some places, including Lincoln Park, it becomes a neighborhood of the truly affluent, you know, people who are buying or building, you know, multi-million dollar homes, and then that becomes sort of its own thing. So at each stage, there's something to talk about about something that's changing. Um, but often, I mean, yeah, as, as you were sort of saying from the from the quote, I was sort of struck by how at each stage. Um, you know, the people sort of reporting or commenting on it seemed surprised or shocked that this was happening. You know, when it was reading, you know, with the benefit with, with the benefit of reading all of these articles over, you know, that happened over, say, a 20-year period all at once, I could see, oh, this is clearly part of the same story of something that's just sort of happening over and over again. Why do we have, why do we have this image of a past with more stable neighborhoods unaffected by market forces that pit neighbor against neighbor over profits and place. Why do we have this? Is that is that sense of more stable neighborhoods in the past romanticized? Is it exaggerated? Does that make it seem like gentrification is just a contemporary problem? So why do we have this image of a past with more stable neighborhoods? Yeah, you know, that's a really interesting question. I, I, I think... Um, you know, I mean, so one thing I will say in favor of that view, right, is that it really is true that um, in Chicago, like I think in, in most American cities, 
most neighborhoods used to be middle class or mixed income. Um, you know, as recently as, say, 1950, 60, even 1970, most neighborhoods were, were middle income or mixed, uh, or mixed income. And um, that's no longer the case, right? Now, most Chicago neighborhoods are either high income or low income. Um, and they're, you know, the number that are sort of in the, in the middle really is, has shrunk substantially. Um, and so I think, you know, in that sense, there's some, there's some truth to the idea that, you know, the city is being bifurcated along economic lines and obviously along racial lines that are very correlated with economic lines. Um, so I think that, you know, I think there is some truth to that. On the other hand, I, I do absolutely think that, you know, people have sometimes you, you hear in sort of rhetoric about or discussions about um, how gentrification works now, there's some sense that, um, you know, in the past, right, housing was not part of this sort of brutal market competition. You know, it wasn't about speculation. It wasn't about profit. And that's completely untrue, right? I mean, you know, housing uh, has been the subject of one sort of competitive market innovation after another, uh, going well back into the 19th century, you know, Big developers were building speculative um, tract housing subdivisions in Chicago, you know, already before the 1900s. Um, you know, we now call those bungalows and we love them, right? But those were speculative tract housing developments. Um, and, you know, and obviously also housing was the site of really fierce uh, uh, racist um, exclusion. Right. I mean, uh, you know, we spent most of the 20th century um, in a in a city where, you know, um, if you if you were a black person and you crossed the wrong street to try and rent a home or buy a home, you were liable to have your home bombed or um, to have, you know, a cross burned on your lawn. Um, so, you know, in that sense, we are not living in anything new. Right. The sort of the market forces and, and, and you know. Racism and classism have been a factors for forever uh, in in Chicago. Um, so in that way, you know, why why do we sometimes not why is that not top of mind when we look at the problems today? I don't know. Um, I you know I think some of it is just romanticizing the past. You know, obviously the problems today are more in our face. We can see them. They're actually affecting um, our lives in a more immediate way. Um, but I think it, it is useful, and obviously it's one of the reasons I wrote the book. I think it is useful to try and connect some of the issues that happened in the past to the ones today and sort of gives us more of a perspective about what is going on in our lives now. That romanticization is really interesting because, as you were just saying, how bungalows were the tracked housing of their day, and now we embrace them in in a very, you know, proud way here in Chicago. There's a block, actually, Daniel, on the north side of, uh, it's on Fairfield, it's around Ainsley, Argyle, it's just north of Lawrence. It kind of dead ends at both ends. And there's no parkway, it's just a curb, then sidewalk. And it's a model home street of bungalows from the 20s and 30s, and it's just absolutely stunning. You can You were supposed mm-hmm. to go down the street and select the home that you wanted, then you would have that home built wherever. And it's just a great collection. So if people actually want to see a really great collection of bungalows, because it's a it's the shopper's row of bungalows, it's over on Fairfield or on Ainsley or Argyle. People can check it out. But you write the simple story that Chicago, like many other American cities, had a distinct period of economic decline as whites fled for the suburbs after World War II. And then a distinct period of resurgence as young people returned to the city in the 1990s and afterwards 
covers up a much more complicated reality. What is the narrative that everything got better in the 1990s? What is it trying to tell? What does it fail to tell? Yeah, I mean, I think it is trying to tell um, something that that clearly does have a a bit of truth to it, which is that, you know, for the most part, capital was, and, and people with capital and money were leaving the central city from, you know, really from like the 20s through um you know pick a date the 80s i don't know um and you know from and it, it sort of you created a lot of problems created a lot of problems for low income people and people who are sort of stuck in these rapidly disinvested or disinvesting uh neighborhoods uh in the in the inner sort of inner core of the city and it was also and it also meant that you know the um one of the sort of driving forces of public policy for the city, for, for any mayor, governors, was how to bring middle-class people and, you know, money back into the central city. Then there was sort of, a, you know, at some point we sort of switched into a, a different kind of paradigm where actually now, you know, clearly one of the sort of dominant forces in the Chicago metro area and other ones um, is that middle class people and uh, people with money businesses are moving back to the central city? That's the sort of dominant change. Um, and increasingly, people are saying, well, one one of the big questions of public policy is how do we manage the inflow of capital and of money uh, of people um, in a way that is you know minimally disruptive and harmful to others. Um, so you know that I think that is a real sort of uh, 30,000-foot view change. What I think it doesn't capture is that both of those things, both of those processes of sort of uh, uh, return of people and money to the city, to the central city, and flight are both happening at the same time over this entire period. It's sort of, you know, it, one time or another, different ones are sort of dominant, but they're both happening at, the, at the, all at the same time. And so, you know, one of the arguments the book makes is that um, you know, in the sort of years after World War II, which we think of as the sort of peak of white flight um, and suburbanization, that was the very time that the sort of model of inner city gentrification was being created in Lincoln Park. Um, those two things were happening at the same time. And actually, even more than that, that the what happened in Lincoln Park only really makes sense in the context of that sort of broader economic decline and, and white flight and suburbanization. You know, the people in Lincoln Park knew that that was what was going on, right? And they said, we are basically, we are going to carve out a little space for ourselves in the central city where we're going to have the privileges and the benefits that we would get if we moved to the suburbs um, and where we're not going to have, we're going to be able to sort of keep away all the disadvantages and the stigmas um, that are sort of taking hold in the rest of the central city. Um, and so what they did was very, very much tied into the sort of broader story that was happening then of, of again, white flight, suburbanization, and that sort of thing. So were these, were these rehabbers then, were they, I don't know if this is a fair word, were they refugees from the suburbs and then they brought their suburbanization to the city and then they suburbanized the neighborhood? Is that what leads to the gentrification of Lincoln Park, that suburbanites wanted to suburbanize uh, Chicago? 
Yeah, I think you could certainly you could you could see it that way from an angle. I mean, I think a lot of the people who moved to Lincoln Park in the forties, fifties, sixties were from the suburbs. Some of them were from outer city neighborhoods as well. Some of them were from you know other parts of the country and moved moved here. Um, you know, sort of a similar story to today. Um, you know, what I think is I and and I, I think they did in many ways bring some very suburban ideas with them. I mean, some of them were things like. You know, they wanted suburban quality of public services. So, you know, when they moved into Lincoln Park in the 40s and 50s, you know, made, trash pickup wasn't so good. You know, there were broken streetlights and, and sort of the level of, of public services that were, you know, that the city thought fit to give uh, a working class neighborhood and, at that time. Um, and so, you know, partly they demanded that those things be fixed and brought up to, you know, sort of the standards that they expected. Um, you know, they also very much lionized the idea of home ownership. Um, you know, Lincoln Park in 1950 was 85% renter. Um, so that was not a, a neighborhood dominated by home ownership, but then sort of knew the rehabbers or the gentrifiers very much wanted to, to increase that number. You know, they wanted to um, have larger homes. So they often would, you know, they'd buy a building that had been broken up into several smaller apartments and they would recombine the apartments. Um, to create larger units that they, again, was sort of the the scale of of, of space that they were sort of um, that they expected. Um, you know, in other ways, it's ironic because they certainly did not see themselves as bringing the suburbs to Lincoln Park. They were very, and this was one of the things that sort of struck me as sort of shockingly modern. Um, they rejected the suburbs. They were, you know, they they said that's a whole bunch of you know conformist, um, you know, boring. Uh, you know, whatever, you know, we don't want to be there. We want to be in this sort of historic neighborhood with working class neighbors, with, you know, authentic uh, community and whatever. So, you know, they saw themselves as really rejecting the suburbs, even though, you know, at the same time, they were clearly bringing a lot of sort of suburban expectations and suburban, suburban sort of modes of living and modes of governance to the neighborhood. But like you said, that wasn't their intent. You write the earliest bohemian rehabbers on the north side and their more middle-class successors who laid the groundwork to bring, they're the ones who laid the groundwork to bring urban renewal to Lincoln Park. Is this the same path gentrification always takes? Because this takes me back to an interview I think I did in 1999 or 2000 with Rebecca Solnit about uh, Hollow City and the gentrification of San Francisco at that time. First, the Bohemians, then the middle-class folks think it's cool, so they move in. Then they sell out to the gentrifiers. Can we blame the whole thing, whole thing, on them damn suburban Bohemians who suburbanized the neighborhood? And I can say that because my great-grandmother and father were Bohemians. So can we blame it all on suburban Bohemians who just constantly over and over recreate gentrification? Um, no, I mean, I think, you know, I, I think they're clearly, in many cases, the first step, um, you know, and I, and I think one of the, one of the sort of lessons I took away from this is, um, you know, there are, there are people who want to live in a sort of, um, you know, again, a, a, a working class neighborhood, you know, people from a middle class background or upper middle class background who want to live in a more uh, working class neighborhood or a neighborhood with a sort of ethnic identity as a kind of statement of their own, you know, authentic, whatever, bohemianness. 
Um, but I think the vast majority of the people who follow them, you know, the, the sort of more middle class, upper middle class professionals, moved there largely because they couldn't afford to move to the Gold Coast. Um, and, you know, once prices had gone up in the Old Town Triangle in the sort of southeast corner of Lincoln Park, that was sort of the first part of it to gentrify, and people started spreading to other parts of Lincoln Park, you know, they moved to other parts of Lincoln Park again because they couldn't afford the Old Town Triangle anymore. So I think there's a sort of, um, you know, I, I don't think it's crazy to say that, that a lot of the gentrifiers are sort of being acted on by gentrification as much as they are creating it. Um, although obviously, you know, they have the means to, to sort of have it have a, a less um, a less serious impact on their life because ultimately they can just go a couple blocks or, you know, half a mile further and, and buy a house or buy a building or rent. Um, you know, so I, but I, so I guess I would, I would put the blame, even though these actors are clearly sort of involved in, in what's going on, I think the bigger blame is on, um, you know, the housing system and, and systems um, that, that sort of create the consequences of people moving into the central city again with money, you know, I mean, in, a, I th in my opinion, in a, in a healthy, functional housing system, um, you know, having people with some money moving back to the central city uh, would not sort of mean automatically that all of these other people are going to be displaced. Um, so, you know, and I think that, you know, that's obviously about a lot of things, but I think one of the things that it's about, right, and I sort of touched on this before, is, is the fact that you know, the rest of the city at that time was just being um, racially stigmatized and uh, and disinvested from in a sort of massive, massive way. And so what happened was it created this, this situation where, you know, when people moved back, they basically were, were strongly uh, incentivized to all move into this one little pocket of the North side, because that's where they could count on decent public services. That's where, um, you know, there wasn't this huge amount of racist stigma. And, you know, obviously, um, the people moving back weren't, um, completely innocent of creating that themselves either. Um, but I think, you know, if, if there had been a, a situation in which the city had provided better services across the board in which, you know, there hadn't been this sort of intense anti-black racism, uh, and anti-immigrant, anti-Puerto Rican, Mexican um, racism that affected much of the south and west sides of the city, um, you know, the the impact of people moving back would not have been so concentrated and so um, all taken out on this one pocket of the north side. And I think that's a that's a dynamic that we still have. Um, you know, the, the the bounds of gentrification still move out just sort of block by block from you know, what I think of as the zone of affluence on the north and now sort of northwest and west sides. Um, it's a much bigger now than it was in, in the 1950s, but, um, you know, it still represents all of these people who could be spreading across the city, all trying to cram into one part of it and, and pushing up prices as a result in that one part. You write that to the north of the Old Town Triangle, which is also now known as the Viagra Triangle because it's where old dudes go and they're having their midlife crisis and they try to pick up young women. It's really gross. But to the north of the uh, Old Town Triangle around the intersection of Broadway and Diversity, 
young people who had been priced out of Lincoln Park's lakefront districts found a new neighborhood whose virtues they extolled in ways that sounded remarkably familiar. A multi-ethnic mix of families, senior citizens, and young people, wrote one resident. On its commercial street, quote, old women carried straw baskets to their German bakeries, their Jewish meat markets, and Greek grocers. The neighborhood churned in charm and poverty and earthiness. Once just a pocket of the larger Lakeview neighborhood, the young professional arrivals called it Newtown. Why does gentrification erase authenticity if the attraction to the neighborhood is that authenticity and you want to profit from that neighborhood, then why would gentrification, a profit-seeking method, erase the authenticity that has attracted people to the neighborhood to begin with? Yeah, I mean, that's a complicated question. I mean, I think, um, you know, I think I think to some extent you can say it's, it's, um, it's unintentional. You know, the people who move there, um, who have more money, who want to be around the sort of, you know, that quote-unquote authenticity. Um, you know, they're very present, and their their um, purchasing power uh, drives up prices and uh, attracts, you know, new businesses that cater to them and not to, you know, their neighbors. Um, and so to some extent, you know, it's, it's sort of, the, you know, their presence changes the neighborhood, and there's sort of no way around that. Um, I, I do think though, again, you know, I, I think a, a sort of one overarching question about all of this, up, you know, continuing to today is, you know, to what extent are these neighborhoods valuable because of, you know, their, again, quote unquote authenticity or their sort of ethnic cultural identity? Um, and to what extent are they valuable because they're just the next neighborhood, you know, up from, uh, a, a, a middle class or upper middle class or affluent neighborhood. Um, basically, you know, are the people who say that they're moving to those neighborhoods because of the culture and whatever, are they really just kidding themselves? And really they're moving there because they can't move, they can't afford to move to the nicer, you know, the, 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 the wealthier neighborhood next door. And so, you know, they've just gone to where they can afford. Um, I, I think one you know, obviously, I think I think there you know are people who fit in both categories, but I think one one point to the idea that actually um, it's just that they can't afford the place that they actually want to live is that you know when a neighborhood does lose its authenticity, um, when those communities have been mostly erased from the neighborhood, um, prices don't go down. <laughs> you know, people don't stop moving there, um, and you know, to me, that says that what people really value is, um, you know, proximity to jobs downtown, proximity to major amenities like the lake and lakefront parks and, uh, and proximity to social networks, the social networks that they want to be a part of, you know, which in this case are these sort of upwardly mobile urban professional networks. Um, and that the sort of fetishization of, you know, ethnic communities, um, and their their culture and their authenticity is maybe not really the driving factor, even though that's something that you know these people have been talking about since the, at least the 1940s. Um, but that maybe that's actually not what's really driving them, and that's sort of the narrative that gets laid on top of 
a sort of more um, material uh, dynamic of what's going on. You write that growing wealth in parts of central Chicago cannot be separated from growing disinvestment in other neighborhoods. How dependent is growing wealth in white neighborhoods in Chicago on growing disinvestment in communities of color? I think quite a bit. I mean, you know, one, you know, if you look at a neighborhood, you know, so, you know, so there's new, new apartments going up in, say, Logan Square, Wicker Park that, you know, go for $2,500 or $3,000 a month, right? And meanwhile, there are, you know, apartments just a couple miles away, say, in Garfield Park or, um, you know, neighborhoods like that. Um, that are just as close to downtown. The housing stock is gorgeous. There's a big, you know, a big park, Garfield Park and the conservatory and all that. Um, you know, and those apartments are going for a third, a quarter of what they go for in, um, you know, in Wicker Park or Logan Square. And, you know, you have to sort of ask, why is that? Um, how can it be that there's such the, such a huge, you know, that people are willing to pay so much more when they could get, you know, the very similar housing for, you know, so much less. And I think the answer is all about this sort of, you know, broad generations long disinvestment and sort of racist stigmatization of uh, neighborhoods like Garfield Park and obviously many others across the South and West Side. Um, if you imagine a world in which that stigma and, and that disinvestment doesn't exist, then you would have nobody would be you know you you could not get the prices that you have um, on the north side and northwest side um, unless you basically had those people refuse to move anywhere else in the city, right? Um, you know, and this is I think a difference between Chicago and some of the other sort of major cities we talk about having crises of gentrification, like New York or San Francisco. I think in New York and San Francisco, some other places, you know, those are growing regions, those are, you know, economically booming regions. Um, and you can say you can you could you could say there is a sort of regional shortage of of housing. You know, people are 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 cramming in there and basically um you know sort of all bidding up against each other in the in the whole region. In Chicago that's not the case, right? We're not a growing region. Um obviously downtown is doing well economically, but as a region we're not doing super well economically. Um, the only reason that we can have $3,000 apartments is because everybody with that amount of money is competing against each other in a really small section of the city. Um, I think that's the only way to get that, those kinds of property values um, in, a, in a context like Chicago's. Um, and so, you know, in the absence of, again, those sort of lines of disinvestment, that, that sort of um, shunning behavior... Uh, of so much of the South and West Side by sort of upper middle class wealthy people. Um, I think property values on the North Side and, and gentrified neighborhoods on the North Side would fall substantially because there'd just be no reason to pay that much. Is that concentration of population then what made Lincoln Park unique? What made it successful where other gentrification projects may not have been? Yeah, I, right. I, I think I think for a variety of reasons, Lincoln Park became the place um, where um, you know people of that of those backgrounds um, sort of all coordinated and 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 decided like, okay, this is 
this is the place that we're going to sort of um, create our, our little green zone. Um, you know, and I think you can look at other examples of, and I think this, this also maybe goes against some narratives about how gentrification works, because I think a lot of times, you know, we talk about it as being sort of this top-down process driven by, um, you know, big developers or um, institutions or, or, or governments. And obviously, the government in particular is extremely important in sort of setting the stage and creating the conditions for gentrification to happen. Um, but I think a sort of counterexample to what happened in Lincoln Park is Hyde Park. Um, where you did have this very top-down dynamic of the University of Chicago, incredibly powerful, incredibly resourced, um, trying really, really, really hard to effectively gentrify Hyde Park, and you know they were they 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 were successful in displacing a lot of people because they got federal money to do you know uh, quote unquote slum clearance and 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 just demolish huge parts of the neighborhood. Um, but Hyde Park didn't become a center of wealth in the way that Lincoln Park did um, at all. Um, and and I think that does suggest that, you know, the sort of top-down model is maybe limited in how much it can do because what really does drive gentrification is the sort of, you know, in many ways, bottom-up sort of grassroots movement of, Middle class, upper middle class people, which did exist in Lincoln Park, right? Lincoln Park, although certainly eventually developers did become interested, in the beginning they weren't. In the beginning, uh, Lincoln Park was redlined. Banks wouldn't give them loans, wouldn't give them mortgages, and it was, um, you know, people sort of. It, it was the sort of grassroots movement of of middle class, upper middle class people moving in, using their own money to buy up and fix up properties, um, and then. Uh, you know, and th- and that turned out to be a much more powerful and much more durable force than I think the sort of other examples of institutional top-down uh, attempts at neighborhood change. One of the other th- uh, fascinating things that you talk about in the book is how it's private investment that really guides with the kind of development that uh, controls any area of the city. It's very rarely public investment. Private investment outweighs public investment by a large amount of money, yet we so constantly blame any part of our urban renewal uh, programs and policies on the government instead of pointing towards private interests who have a much greater effect. You also write that petitions and counterpetitions gave way to smashed windows, bombings, and death threats out of this battle, modern Lincoln Park was born. What does the fact that it devolved into violence tell you about the fight for Lincoln Park when it came to gentrification? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it really underscores how um, how important and how sort of you know deeply felt the changes were in Lincoln Park as they are now. Um, and on both sides, you know, the people, uh, the people who were moving in, um, the, the gentrifiers, you know, they, on the one hand, had a narrative about themselves that they were saving the neighborhood and that was, you know, that they were reclaiming it, um, you know, for a sort of rightful place as a, as a sort of prestigious inner city area. Um, and they, they held very tightly to that idea of, who they were, but they also held very tightly to the idea that, you know, they had sunk a lot of money into their properties and anything that threatened um, property values, threatened the, the the changes that they had 
you know, worked really, really hard uh, and, and, and sort of bet a lot of money on um, was a sort of existential threat to them. Um, and of course, you know, the people who were being displaced, on the other hand, um, it was also obviously an existential threat to them. I mean, it was, it was sort of the obliteration of their community. And many of these people had already had their previous communities obliterated. I mean, sort of right how um, a lot of the uh, people who lived in, in Central and, and Western Lincoln Park were displaced from uh, Cabrini Green when that, was, uh, when, when that neighborhood was torn down to the public, high, public housing high-rises were displaced from Sandberg Village, uh, uh, you know, where thousands of homes were torn down for a, a private uh, middle-income housing development. Um, and so they were basically faced with the prospect of yet again being pushed out of their homes. Um, and, you know, the people who, uh, by, by the late 60s, um, you had people um, on both sides who were willing to use sort of physical force to try and stake their claim to to their neighborhood and to their community, and and you know again, I, th- I think that's something that um, we haven't yet uh, reached again the same level of, uh, of of violence specifically around the issue of of gentrification and renewal that that Lincoln Park saw in the late sixties. Um, but you know, uh, you know, there 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 are. Um, you know, I think those those strains are are still are still here, and certainly in other places, in other cities, um, you, you know, you do sometimes see that. We have been speaking with urban issues scholar Daniel K. Hertz, author of The Battle of Lincoln Park, Urban Renewal and Gentrification in Chicago. All July is Listener Appreciation Month here on This Is Hell. And listener Leo suggested Daniel by emailing us at chuck at com, And because he did, he will be getting our secret mystery prize. Uh, also, uh, you can find out more about Daniel by going to danielkhertz.com. That's Daniel K-A-Y, Hertz.com. Find out more about his organization, the Center for Tax and Budget Accountability, at ctbaonline.org. You can follow Daniel on Twitter and see all of his photography at Daniel K. Hertz. One last question for you, Daniel, and it's what we call the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, our audience is going to hate your response. Was the loss in the battle for Lincoln Park a more segregated Chicago? Did the victory in the battle for Lincoln Park by the rehabbers lead to a more racially and economically segregated Chicago? Yeah, I I think so. And I think, um, you know, I think what happened in Lincoln Park and the fact that Lincoln Park was the first place where Chicago really had this debate over um, over gentrification, although you know part, a lot of it happened before that word even existed. Um, but that you know was really the first place. I, I think we can imagine a different path that the city could have taken, right? Which would have involved um, you know better protections um, for lower and income and working class people in Lincoln Park to preserve their communities there, but also would have involved. Um, you know, real reinvestment in the rest of the city and saying to these newcomers, look, um, you know, Lincoln Park is great, but, you know, we can also live in other parts of the city. We don't, you know, we're not, we don't have to create a sort of green zone um, for the white middle class and just sort of abandon the rest of the city. Uh, We can try to have, try to build a more integrated neighborhood, uh, a more integrated city 
Um, and the failure to do that, I think, really did cement the, uh, you know, the, the, the current dynamic we have, where we do have this sort of big uh, zone of affluence, green zone that covers so much of the north and northwest sides of the city, is now spreading, you know, to the west and to the south. Um, and the rest of the city, you know, um, is 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 still disinvested. Um, and, and I think Lincoln Park represents, you know, Lincoln Park in the 50s and 60s represents a, a massive missed opportunity to, to, to change that path. Daniel, thank you so much for being on our show. Thanks to Leo's for suggesting Daniel. Hopefully we'll see both Leo and Daniel at our anniversary party on Saturday, July 27th. Really appreciate you being on the show with us this week, Daniel. Thanks so much. A fascinating book. Thank you so much for having me. All right. Take care. This is hell where we put people before profits, which turns out to be the stupidest business model ever. In in a moment, during the moment of truth, Jeff Dorchin wonders why the right thinks anyone cares about their feelings, that the Dems are too far left. Speaking of our horrible business model where we stupidly put people before profits on Patreon this week, first I gave a completely uninformed review of an event I did not attend. And why not? Everybody seems to be giving their hot take on last week on Socialism 2019 conference, this year's version of the annual meeting that has been taking place here in Chicago for 20 years. And over those 20 years, I've attended a total of zero times. There is all sorts of controversy swirling around this year's confab. Not that you may know or care. But what do you expect from a conference named for socialism, which is defined in many often competing in contradictory ways. Of course, you're going to get crap from socialists, all sorts of different kinds of socialists. At one point during my research, I looked up socialism, uh, types of socialism on Google. It then popped up the question, what are the three types of socialism? I then clicked on the question, and the answer was, there are eight types of socialism. That's how confusing socialism is. Of course, you're going to get crap from socialists. Then, after I give my ever-so-unenlightened views of a lefty trade show I didn't attend, we shared our very first interview with a guest who was on this show earlier today, Henry Giroux. So if you like Henry, subscribe to patreon.com slash thisishell and hear our conversation dating way back to April 2009 and hear my completely uninformed review of SOTCON 2019. Special thanks this week for joining us on Patreon goes to... Andrew and John, thanks for joining us on Patreon this week. If you want to support truly independent, live, completely independent alternative media, we take no grants, we have no advertising, we're not beholding to anyone, which is more than can be said for a lot of what you think are alternative media outlets, but are not. Support This Is Hell by becoming a This Is Hell subscriber at patreon.com slash thisishell. And every week... You get exclusive content only for subscribers that includes access to live streaming content you cannot get anywhere else. That's This Is Hell on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell. Coming up on this week's This Is Hell during the moment of truth, Jeff Dorchin wonders why the right thinks anyone cares about their feelings that the Dems are too far left. We'll also keep reminding you about our upcoming fourth annual 20th anniversary and listener appreciation party and art show happening at Carrie's Lounge. God, we really got to shorten the title of that. <laughs> happening at Carrie's Lounge 2251 West Devon. On Saturday, July 27th, in two weeks, we want to thank some listeners for sharing This Is Hell online, as well as what's happening on upcoming episodes of This Is Hell. All of that coming up. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show host, Chuck Mertz, producing this week's This Is Hell, Alex Jerry. Alex!
I know you have Happy on the line. One, two, you know what to do. Checking in with the advisory conservatives. Welcome to the moment of truth, the thirst that is the drink. I don't think we have to worry about the radical left persuading everyone not to vote. Once the Democrats settle on a candidate that isn't that ratty old chewed up bathrobe, Joe Biden, what we have to worry about is the right wing pundits in New York Times persuading the DNC to think like they do. The Democratic Party is being pulled too far to the left, is the refrain of these noted left haters. David Brooks, Brett Stevens, Sidney Ember, these are the creeps of which to beware. Don't listen to them, DNC. Brooks, Democrats, don't alienate me with your Medicare for all. Man, if Medicare for all makes you vote for dump, you're the same asshole who supported W. Bush despite your come-to-Jesus BS of the last couple years. Climate change denier Brett Stevens also cautions the Dems not to be pulled too far to the left. The only person who's not too far to the left for Stevens is maybe Duterte in the Philippines. And Sidney Ember, who you probably never heard of, just deals in anti-Bernie clickbait. They're all Mickey Mouse versions of urethra blockage Tucker Carlson, who also advises the Dems that being pulled too far to the left will alienate the moderate undecided voter or some similar sentiment. Really? If the Dems avoid being pulled to the left, you'll stop calling them the party of evil socialism? Tucker? Tucker? Our old friend George F. Will is certainly going to be making noises along these lines as the election actually approaches. You know, it's not, it's not really approaching right now. It sits like a shadow in the distance on the highway pavement, viewed through the reticulated air rippling in the heat. You can't tell how far away it is or even if it's real, if it's a dark, wet stain on the horizon or merely a mirage, but we're acting like this is the election year. That may be good. Maybe overreacting early in the game will avoid disaster later. This is how we should be responding to global warming. But our system only allows for political overreaction as opposed to practical, methodical, well-advised, or sane overreaction. George Will recently appeared on the local Los Angeles NPR affiliate KPCC broadcast out of Pasadena City College. That's how far he's fallen. He's had to enter the Palace of Liberal News. Or maybe it's the Palace of Liberal News that has fallen. He opposes Dump and was an early rejecter to his great credit. But don't let that fool you. He still doesn't believe in the people having a voice beyond a tightly circumscribed limit. You might remember when last I wrote of George F. Will, back when he was mocking General Wesley Clark for having the temerity to consider running for president. An army general who would be president. A jumped-up pantry general who never knew his place. If even he's too big for his britches, naturally the normal rank-and-file non-professional masses need to be kept in check. And here's Donald Dump to prove that point. Look at all those rascally masses loving Donald the demagogue. Aren't you glad we put those baffles in the Constitution between the public and the helm of state? Wait, but Dump is president. The baffles didn't work! George Will is a moderate market anarchist. What George Will is, well, what he is, is a 
quantum theorist against the antique Cartesian socialists. Will's on the cutting edge. The world has grown too complicated for government to do much, he says. Only markets with their self-propelled complexity, their instinctual natural agility, can do what needs to be done. Markets, those automatic geniuses of nature, they can understand the dual states of particle and wave. They are undaunted by uncertainty. Socialism means the state runs everything, says George Will, the Heisenberg of economics. The state, however, can only operate in Euclidean space-time, according to Slow out-of-date Newtonian laws, like some kind of fat prehistoric sloth trying vainly to catch delicious cockroaches. At least Will, David Brooks, and the likes of Bill Crystal and David Frum have had the good sense to oppose Dump. But Alan Dershowitz, saints preserve us, don't get too pulled too far to the left. He offers his thoughts much as I do, on everything, whether those thoughts have any chance of receiving a welcome or not. The difference between Dershowitz and myself, though, is that where I am merely unqualified to offer certain thoughts, he is an actively wrong, tainted source of them, like a drinking fountain labeled arsenic. He long ago hitched his wagon to a child rape entrepreneur, and not merely out of legal duty. Hanging with Jeff Epstein and Donald Dump back in the day made him someone. His word. Very important for Dersh to be Someone. Remember when he cried about not being invited to events on the vineyard anymore since vocally supporting Dump? What did he think he was missing out on? Does he really think liberals on Martha's Vineyard are offering up their children at sick New England rape parties? What a creep. At this point, I wouldn't even let him babysit my cactus. Sorry, Dersh. But if your only source for children to rape was Jeff Epstein, that's straight up, man. You're going to have to have Dump introduce you to Putin and see if you can weasel your way back into that circle, you grotesque sex criminal. One person I haven't heard from is Mancow, the Glenn Beck-esque Chicago radio personality who made the difficult transition from shock jock to D-list Fox News friend. Now he's back on a show on WLS. I have no idea what it's like. I have no desire to hear that voice again. But I wonder what he thinks about this Epstein thing. The grooming and recruiting and prostituting and rape of children. Les Wexner... CEO of L Brands, parent company of Victoria's Secret, was both a client and a tight mate of Epstein. He gave Epstein his 21,000-square-foot mansion for little to no money, the home Epstein's lawyers are suggesting he be confined to instead of jail like a normal person. Wexner bought Abercrombie & Fitch at one time, and right after he did, they began their slutty, half-naked teenager-on-heroin ad campaign, the one that prompted Mancow to dub the company Abercrombie & Filth. What does Mancow make of Wexner's closeness with Epstein and Epstein's closeness with Dump? Mostly, though, I would brave the nerve-grating timbre of his tonsils just to hear Mancow warn the Democratic Party not to be pulled too far to the left. If you're going to talk about Medicare for all, you're going to lose moderate voters, he might say in his flat morning madhouse growl that is the very definition of an obnoxious voice. All these people calling themselves conservatives, coming in with their helpful advice for the Democrats. Makes you wonder, doesn't it? Who do they think gives a flying turd? It would be like me advising noted billionaire, fraudster, and liar, and felon Jamie Dimon not to get too attached to his money. Learn to live within your means, Jamie. Can you imagine anything more ridiculous? I do have some advice for a few of these clowns, though, including Bill Clinton. Don't sexually assault children. 
It's not really a left or right issue, is it? I mean, of course, I believe that fascists are more likely to facilitate the rape of children, but really, it, it's something that bleeds across the entire spectrum of hyper-entitled pieces of shit. Just don't rape children and don't protect child molesters. Don't get them miraculously light sentences and neglect to tell their victims what you've done. Don't make the mistake of thinking that your money or your position or your fake faith make it okay. If you haven't done any of things, these things yet, just don't. If you already have, get ready to receive your comeuppance. There's going to be some Nuremberg-style repercussions for all these abusers of children and other human beings once this regime is toppled. So in short, my unsolicited advice for all hyper-entitled pieces of shit and enablers of such, don't allow yourselves to be pulled too far toward child raping. You run the risk of alienating undecided moderates. This has been the moment of truth. Good day. Did you ever see the video of Man Cow being waterboarded? No, but I read about it. I think it's great. He went on for years saying that waterboarding was not torture. Then he gets waterboarded and he immediately admits, yeah, yeah this yeah, is torture. This is torture. So this totally- like Hannity. Hannity did the same thing. It's the <laughs> same damn thing. The only thing I really learned, because I already knew that he was a hypocrite. I already knew right. that he was wrong. So the only thing I learned from Man Cow being waterboarded is that his spray-on hair that he puts on the top of his head, <laughs> that stuff doesn't run when you're waterboarding somebody. Oh, it's really, really weird. You know, uh, our our our, uh, our denizen of Chicago, Jeremy Piven, also has spray-on hair. <laughs> or he did for a while in, the, in that show where he was Cupid. I think it was called Cupid. <laughs> got Jeremy Piven. <laughs> there was a really great, it was like a, a close... Um, what do you call it? Uh, profile of him, a picture of him on the screen. He's like got a shot the of him. worst reputation in Chicago. You know about how he overdosed on sushi and and got mercury poisoning and had to quit the Broadway show. <laughs> no. Yeah, he had to quit this. I think it was a David Mamet play. I think and someone said, "Oh, what do you think about Jeremy Piven uh, leaving your show?" And he's like, "Oh, I hear he got a job as a thermometer." <laughs> Live from land stolen from the natives, this is hell. The best way for you to get the good word out about the evil content of This Is Hell is to share the entire show or individual interviews or correspondence reports or Jeffy's Moment of Truth. Thanks this week goes out to the people who did share the show. Krimsky, a ton of people who shared Jeff's scathing Moment of Truth last week on presidential nomination candidate uh, Marianne Williamson, including Fred, Doug, Jake, Rob, Amy, Julie, and there are a lot of Marianne Williamson fans out there that really <laughs> hated that. I didn't know that there was such a thing. Oh, I, wait. Oh, people were complaining? Oh, my God. Go to Don't our Facebook. Don't be mean to Tinkerbell. <laughs> go to, go to <laughs> our Facebook page, facebook.com slash Radio, and see how people are really pissed about just a moment last week. Also, th- <laughs> thanks, thanks for sharing the show to Fergus. Gorilla Gramophonics, Black Rose Book Distro, Chris, Astrid, Thomas, Matthew, J. Paul, Captain Moonlight, Glenn, Thomas, Zero Books, Jeff with one F, Nick, the Community Reading Group, Marco, Jan, Jesse, and thanks to everyone who shared the show online this week, however you did it, on whatever platform, and we hope you share this week's show and its interviews as soon as they are posted. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show host, Chuck Mertz. Thanks to Jeff Dorchin for being here oh, in my pleasure. studio today. Producing this week's This Is Hell is Alex Jerry. Alex, Yay, what's Alex. the deal with next week's show again? Uh, it's not booked yet, so I, I need to get to work. Ah, This Is Hell, where the coolest musicians get their news. I want to thank our guest, Daniel K. Hertz, author of The Battle 
of Lincoln Park. And I want to thank uh, listener Leo for suggesting Daniel. Leo, you will be getting a special surprise mystery gift from This Is Hell. Is it a suggesting <laughs> For suggesting a guest that got on our show here during Listener Appreciation Month. Thanks to historian Gerald Horn, author of White Supremacy Confronted. And thanks to listener Calvin for suggesting Gerald return to our show. Thanks to Henry A. Giroux for being on our show yet again. Thanks to John for suggesting Henry return to the show. And finally, uh, thanks to listener Paolo, Paolo Bottleneck on Twitter, for telling us that we should have Simon Pirani, author of Burning Up, A Global History of Fossil Fuel Consumption on the show, which we did earlier today. You can hear all of those interviews posted shortly at thisishell.com. This week's Hangover Cure is Cluck and Cleaver's Mother Clucker Sandwich. <laughs> I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show host, Chuck Mertz. This is not the media. This is hell, and there's only one way for you to get over all of the problems that we've introduced to you on this week's show. That's by sitting down in the lotus position, turning your palms towards the sky, focusing on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead, and saying these simple words, everybody's stupid. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. 